Howdy, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these, which is two weeks ago, right? Yes, yes. Uh, how was your Thanksgiving? Oh, it was fine. It was just me and Jen by ourselves, which was kind of wonderful, honestly. But did you still do traditional Thanksgiving dishes? Yeah, yeah. Okay. We did uh, the turkey and the mashed potatoes and rolls and green beans and stuffing. So There you go. And then Jen had pumpkin pie. How about that? So, um, yeah, I had a good one too. Went to my, my, uh, sister-in-law's place. This is what we always do when we're in town. We're mm-hmm. either, either in Boise with my mom and my sister or we're here. And when we're here, it's always the same place. Yeah. It was always, it's always a good time. Food is good. I made uh, macaroni and cheese yeah. for everyone. Uh, it was good. My sister-in-law makes sweet potatoes, which is specifically the Ruth's Chris recipe, mm-hmm. which is like, it's sweet potatoes with, I want to say like pecans and brown sugar on top. Okay. And it's like, it's almost a dessert. It's so sweet, but yeah, it's yeah. so good. Uh, Ruth's Chris. Have you ever been to Ruth's I've never Chris? Been to Ruth's, I've been to a Fleming's. I've been to a Houston's. Okay. Ruth's Chris. First off, it's very pricey. It is. I mean, it's like a top three steak for me. Like okay. that steak was the, one of the best I'd ever had. So if you've got the money, I'd say, uh, you know, if you've got the money, I've got the time is what I'm saying. You know what I want? I've never been to a Lowry's, but I really like prime rib. I've been to the Tamo Shanter. Okay. Uh, on Los Feliz, which is the, one of the oldest restaurants in Los Angeles. Okay. Um, uh, and they're owned by Lowry's and I get the prime rib there. I'm a big prime rib guy, which I feel like is like very mad menish. Like it's very like old time, like is it mid century? Like, I guess so. But yeah. I, I love it. We went to a, a place in Las Vegas, um, for my father-in-law's 70th birthday over the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, called, it was called like the angry butcher or something. And I got this prime rib that was so fucking good, but also like grossed everyone out at the table. Cause it basically like prime rib is like, real rare, yeah. you know? And yeah. so it basically looked like they just slapped down a hunk of raw beef on my plate. And it was and so you good. Just, and and you were cut into it. Like blood <laughs> would pool. Just, oh, it was so good. Uh, I'll say this, uh, speaking of Thanksgiving traditions, it occurred to me that Jen and I did, ha- uh, engage in one of our Thanksgiving traditions, which just now reminds me I have 11. I'm sorry. I you thought know, I had 10. See, I forgot. See, you always do this because now, it worked off my I know, whole thing. I know. No, it's okay. I'll I'm just sorry. start with three movies and end with two. Okay. This is not stuff that uh, people need to know. But, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, I guess we should just talk about the movies. Okay. Um, but now I'm just thinking about prime rib. <laughs> I was a prime rib. So bad. I could really go I, for filet mignon. I'll say that. I'm realizing now I've had prime rib. Uh, I go to Vegas pretty often, but two of the last like three times I went to Vegas, I had prime rib because also for my brother's bachelor party, we went to the, uh, the buffet at the cosmopolitan, which is, uh, which mm. is great. And there was a huge line for the prime rib and the guy cutting it was like, I can serve anyone now if they want it really rare. <laughs> and they're like me and one other guy were like, yep. Like ran up and Oh, a single uh, rider here, please. Thank <laughs> exactly, you. Yeah. Oh, I also went to Disneyland over the, uh, on Friday on, on black Friday, I went to Disneyland. That's exciting. How was it? It was, was crowded, busy? but it was fun. I yeah. we didn't make it on to space mountain at all because the line was, they ran out of the, Here's what happened. Space Mountain ran out of the fast passes early. Yeah. You can't do a single rider on Space Mountain. You cannot. Um, I'm not sure why. Um, Single rider seems to be more of a recent thing. Yeah. And Space Mountain has been around too long for them to incorporate it in, I think. That makes sense. Um, And the line was never longer, never shorter than like 85 minutes all day. So I never did Space Mountain. And we also didn't end up doing 
Indiana Jones because it broke down while we were uh, in line for it. it. It ended up opening up again later, but it was like the line was just too long. Yeah. But yeah, we had a, we had an absolute blast. Uh, it was, um, like 93 degrees on the day after Thanksgiving, which is like, you know, it's a bummer, but it also was like, yeah, I get to do splash mountain, which splash mountain is my personal favorite ride at Disneyland. Yeah. Because and I'll tell you why. Because my favorite ride is Splash Mountain and then all the Fantasyland stuff. I love the Fantasyland rides. But so many of those, especially like Snow White and Mr. Toad yeah. and Pinocchio, are like so dark. Oh, yes. Whereas I love how fun the Splash Mountain is where it's like everyone's having a good time. And there's like one part where it's like, oh, no, Brer Fox is going to eat Brer Rabbit. And then like you go down a hill and it's like, no, everyone's fine. <laughs> yeah. And we're all singing now. Yeah, and you go down a hill into like thorns and uh, thistles and stuff yeah i uh but it's fine it is interesting to me i guess it would take too much for them to rebrand uh splash mountain as what as anything other than song of the south which is not a thing that people can watch like kids have no idea at this point but that's fine because there was a time when there wasn't a Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. True. It was just a ride. And I, to me, it's okay. I'm okay with Splash Mountain just being a ride. Yeah, I guess that's well, why true. Why don't they do that anymore, actually? Why don't they create new rides that aren't based on properties? Did I tell you, this was like two years ago, Jen and I went to Disney World, and we went to Ep- Epcot Center. Epcot Center, pardon me. I have a cold, everybody, so I'm a little iffy on my words. I apologize. Um, and we went to Norway. Um, and so there was a ride called Maelstrom. I remember when my mom and I went to uh-huh. Disney World, you know, a long time ago. And, uh, and I was excited to go on it. I remember being a really fun ride that incorporated all this Norwegian mythology. And so uh, I saw that it was actually shut down. And I was like, oh my gosh, what's... So I asked somebody what's, what happened. And they said, well, we're rebranding the ride to be Frozen-based. And of so, yes. So... If you know about Epcot, you know that in each land, in each uh, uh, country, they have people like young people from that country yeah. there to answer your questions. So I went into the gift shop and I saw these very these three three bl- three blonde blonde, and I said, "Let me ask you a question." And I recognize you can't say everything, but uh, let me ask you a question. What's your take on uh, re- the rebranding? And here's the thing. They're only there for a summer. They don't care. Right. So they were very honest about, uh, about how angry they were that like, they said, we didn't come here to answer questions about frozen. We don't know about frozen. We know about Norway and we're not getting any questions about Norway. And by the way, frozen doesn't even take place in Norway. Like, I was like, Oh, I wasn't ready for this. And it was, uh, it was really exciting. But, uh, Um, yeah, so I do. So I feel like older rides are being like, it's a small world. They, that was its own thing. And then they started incorporating Disney characters into it. Yeah. Yeah. They need more rides that are their own thing. That's true. Jungle Um, cruise still its own thing. Yeah. Jungle cruise. I feel like I, I love it because I love dad jokes, but also you go into it enough and you, they they cycle through. They don't always do the same jokes, but there are some, they always do the backside of water, which is not funny anymore. It's almost like, it's like, you have to pause like when Kramer walks into Jerry's apartment, it's like, Oh, he did the backside of water joke. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, it's so hacky that or it's so established that the backside of water joke is in the weird Al song about the jungle. Cruise. Skipper Dan. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a which great is song. A very depressing song. Um, yeah. Uh, so we did the jungle cruise. We also did, you know, speaking of that, we did something I'd never, I've been, I've lived in Southern California 12 years, been to Disneyland a handful of times, never done rivers of America or the, the Mark, we, we got on the Mark Twain riverboat. Oh yeah. It's, it's a delight. It yeah. is. I didn't know there was like animatronic stuff back there. Yeah. 
Yeah. Although all the all the Jungle Cruise and Rivers America Rivers America animatronic is just like we're all not gonna say that there's like the you know especially when this stuff was built yeah uh, there are some ra- there's racist connotations and now yeah. like it's still there and maybe they've changed the script i think they've like, changed the script i think like the native americans on rivers of america are treated a bit more they're kind of there's a noble that it might be the noble savage thing yeah, but there's a nobility there yeah and i think anytime like but even that, like any depiction of Native Americans that I feel like doesn't, you know, nod to the fact that like our country exists the way it is because we committed genocide. Well, that'd like, be a hard is, thing to incorporate into. Uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, you're right. But uh, it it does seem like a little bit um, patronizing, I guess. Anyway, we're supposed to talk about movies. Indeed, we got, we're yeah. like way behind here. Um, all right. So uh, I watched your last movie journal. I talked about a 70s sexploitation movie called Jailbait Babysitter that I watched. It wasn't very good. But the same director also made a movie, a horror movie, called Grave of the Vampire, which you can also watch on Amazon. Very low-quality video, but that's... Empty, I would assume. um, (laughs) um, Not initially, Okay. yes. Yes. Um, uh, And here's why I wanted to watch Grave of the Vampire. Not because I was so impressed by director John Hayes' work on Jailbait Babysitter. Uh, but because if I gave you 100 guesses, you would not get correct who wrote this 1972 schlocky vampire movie. It's probably not Roger Ebert. <laughs> no. Um, no, is this someone you know as a writer? From the, like, still dead now or, or still no, no, working? St- still, still working. Still working. Okay. I'm going to say Norman Jewison. <laughs> No, no. Okay. Um, two more guesses. Two more guesses. Okay. Who's someone who works as a writer? Okay. That you wouldn't think has now directed as well. Oh. Um, yeah. Gosh. And still alive. That's, still I mean, alive. this is someone who's been around a while. Uh, yeah, but here's the thing. They didn't even become well known until like 25 years after this movie. This was a very early, this was written, I think in his late twenties and now he's an old man. Wow. Gosh. I don't think I can, I don't, I'm not great at this. I'm not, okay. I don't know. I'm, I, I don't know enough. I don't know enough writers. You know this guy's name. Okay. David Chase, creator of the Sopranos, <laughs> wrote <laughs> Grave of the Vampire, All right. which is a, like a nasty horror movie. Yeah. That, like it's, it's about a vampire that not only kills people, he also rapes, rapes women because okay. he's, when he was alive, I guess he was a rapist. And so that that's the one thing about his personality that carried over. So now he's a rapist vampire. Wow. And, um, but it's incredibly strange and it has all these great, like you can kind of feel David chase in it in that it's, it is psychologically interested in its characters. Yeah. And there's a lot of long monologues. Yeah. Uh, and also some really weird shit, like the woman who's raped early on, gets impregnated by a vampire and gives birth to an undead baby. Oh, okay. And, uh, the baby is dying because she doesn't realize that milk or whatever won't feed it. Eventually she realizes the baby is hungry for blood. Mm -hmm. And so she slits her breast open and the baby drinks blood from her breast. You know, the (laughs) the blood can be from anywhere. I know, but I think she was just, I'm already holding him in this position or whatever. Like that's, it's very strange that that scene. Uh, and then the movie jumps forward to be about this, uh, the baby grown up who Mm -hmm. is now like sort of like blade 
uh, all of their strengths under their weaknesses. He's yeah. a half breed or whatever. Um, hunting, f- like trying to find his father. Okay. The vampire. I see. It's a really strange movie. It's not great. The version on Amazon looks like shit. Um, yeah. and is, uh, cropped, uh, to one, three, three. Uh, but I was really interested to watch it when I saw that this was, I think the first writing credit on David Chase's IMDb. Um, well, <laughs> and surprisingly <laughs> not the last. And here's the thing. It, says it's based on a book by a novel by david chase hmm. but this novel doesn't seem to exist anywhere i i could I, see him not throwing that out there but it's got to be uh, but i know. also wonder if it's one of those things where maybe like it got optioned before it was published and then it sure. never actually got published sure do you know what i mean sure um like maybe it was never even a finished novel there was like a yeah treat whatever the treatment do you call it you don't call it a treatment when it's a novel right i don't yeah i don't think so there's a word for it and i can't okay. remember what it is so whatever but, the novel version yeah. of a treatment maybe that's what existed yeah. it got bought and he was like oh, i'll just write the movie i will say if you had said tv writer i probably would have gotten there and that's why i didn't want know, to say tv right, writer right. <laughs> because it would have been although i probably yeah. would have said david milch first oh uh, you were in the right first name family yeah um okay and the right uh network i guess that's true, yeah. Okay. Um, moving on, I saw a movie that I had been interested to see because I'm a very, very big fan of Catherine Bigelow's work and have been since before The Hurt Locker. Mm-hmm. I was into Catherine Bigelow before it was cool to be sure. into Catherine Bigelow. Um, <laughs> literally, at my old old job, like two jobs ago, I had a blue steel poster uh, in my behind my desk, yes, because uh, that was one of the posters that I found at, at work, and I was like, "Frame this." Um, anyway, uh, so I've been interested to see this, but not exactly eager to see it because uh, it's supposed to be it was supposed to be a tough sit, and it is a tough sit, and also not really worth it. And that's Detroit. Um, yeah. Okay. I, I just I don't really get why why. Catherine Bigelow and Mark Bowl, the screenwriter, why they wanted to tell this story and why they wanted to tell it the way that they did. It's, um, it's incredibly difficult to watch. Um, it's also, I mean, this is what I, my joke that I said to Natalie afterwards, I was like, well, it was brutally painful, but at least it was two and a half hours. <laughs> um, uh, although I do think the runtime is justified because it gives it's awkward when you're watching it because it feels like you're near the end, but there's like an hour left because mm-hmm. what would have been like, I think in a standard movie, it would have been the denouement, maybe a little bit of text on screen, but here's what happened to this guy and his right. this guy. It actually goes into all that, which I, that's like. a thing I like. It's, it, it, it was my problem with 12 years of slave. It was my problem with unbroken, unbroken. is like, no, no, I want to see the rest of it as well. Yeah. And I just generally, um, have a, uh, we're good. Um, I think, uh, our guest is here. Okay. Uh, I'll just say I generally have a, um, an aversion to text on screen at the end of the movie as a way of wrapping things up. It's like, uh, I didn't come here to, to, you know, I could you send me the magazine article or whatever. I don't need that. I'm here to watch cinema. If what it's saying is like primarily emotional, like an emotional payoff or something like that, but like a low level one. But if it's like the story continues, it's like, well then show me that story. If it's, if it's this interesting that you think I want to know it, then show it. Okay. Obviously we took a break there, but we're back now. Uh, and I've got uh, one more movie to go before we switch off to you. I watched the documentary. I've been meaning to watch for a few years and, uh, I'm over the moon about this documentary. It's called tattoo nation. I don't know if you heard. Oh, okay. Um, 
and it's a documentary about tattoos, but it's not mm. about the history of all tattoos. It is pretty much specifically about what apparently in the tattoo community are known, uh, known as Chicano tattoos. Oh, okay. Yeah. Basically Southern California, the word started as Southern California Latinos, mostly prisoners started because it used like, I guess it used to be the kind of like old, like mid century, like naval tattoos, like the right. heart that's his mom or whatever, that sort of thing. And this idea of no color tattoos with the super fine, super fine lines because they were doing it in prison with guitar E strings and ink, um, you know? And so the, the, the idea of like the super fine lines and the shading without color and the, basically what has become kind of the de facto American style of tattooing. And it, uh, according to the documentary is, is spreading to places like, uh, like the Netherlands, um, started here, uh, in Southern California among Latino prisoners. Um, and that's pretty much what the movie is, is about. And it's full of, I mean, so I David, are you saying that my sweet rosebud tattoo gives me a lot of street cred? Yeah, I think that's it. Okay. Um, I'll tell you this movie made me want a tattoo. I don't have any, but really? I want a tattoo because it made, it gave me like, I always appreciated, you know, tattoos. My, um, my wife has a number of tattoos. Uh, you do, you know, a mm-hmm. lot of people, I, I, a lot of people I know have tattoos and take them seriously. And, and, um, I, I've always appreciated them, but I've always, I've never really felt the urge myself, yeah. but seeing this documentary and seeing all this beautiful art, you know, um, and how seriously these guys take it. And th- the fact that it is, you know, you and I are movie fans mm-hmm. and movies are art, but they are also kind of, I think in a lot of people's eyes, a low or vulgar art. You know uh, what I mean? y- yeah, I guess that is true. I don't, I have a hard time even seeing it that way, but yes, I understand. Um, why do you have a hard time seeing it that way? Just uh, like seeing it as low. Like when you see what film sure can be, but vulgar in the sense of like, everybody engages with it everybody uh, and it can and it runs the gamut as far as quality and effectiveness and stuff like that yeah. so i understand what you're saying and so I, I like the interviews of these tattoo artists because they are artists in every sense of the word world word i always do that with that phrase um i always want to say every sense of the world which isn't right you uh, can make it into <laughs> something uh they are absolutely artists but they're also not artiste types, you know, they're very right. like very down to earth, you know, like blue collar guys yeah. uh, and gals. Um, uh, this movie, it's uh, if you have Amazon, it's on prime. Uh, you can watch it for free. Uh, I, I loved it. And I really seriously want to get a tattoo or maybe some tattoos. <laughs> well, what would uh, the guy who did my tattoo said, and I've heard it before, but he said it, he goes, once you get this one done, and you realize how much it actually doesn't hurt, uh-huh. you're going to want to get another one. And boy, he's right. Yeah. Like, unfortunately they're kind of expensive, uh, and I don't want to get a cheap one, um, because oh, yeah. uh, bad news. But, That's what, uh, uh, my, my wife grew up, one of her best friends, her dad was a tattoo artist and apparently his motto was, uh, good tattoos aren't cheap and cheap tattoos aren't good. That's probably about right. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. And so, uh, when the time comes and I have uh, two to three hundred dollars to blow, uh-huh. um, then yes, I'll probably get another tattoo at some yeah. point. So. I want to get something that is sort of um, uh, probably something about St. Louis, mm. you know, um, and other, you know, some. I want to get stuff that's yeah. Uh, I have a whole bunch of ideas. Okay, yeah. Anyway, mine uh, are all very obvious. 
Is it all movie stuff? I've got my rosebud yeah, here. I've cool. Obviously, a question mark. Okay, yeah. The plan cool. is to get a que- question marks all over my body, except for my rosebud tattoo. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I uh, I was just going to go with like a big uh, inverted cross on my back and maybe a sure. pentagrams down my. Okay, down my I could arm. see it. I could see it. <laughs> I did have an idea for my forehead, but fucking Charles Manson took that. <laughs> Uh, R.I.P. Am I right? Uh, no. Um, no, I mean, you know, life is sacred and everything. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, all right. Um, that's it. Uh, it's, it's your turn now. Right. Okay. So 20 minutes into this, guy, as I, <laughs> as I mentioned, um, uh, Jen and I have a Thanksgiving tradition, uh, and that is to watch Jodie Foster's home for the holidays, Wonderful, which is a, Wonderful movie. We've talked about it on here before. Um, it was just released on uh, Shout Select uh, by Shout Select on Blu-ray, so I purchased that. We we had this old DVD copy, and you know, like so old that it didn't fit the it didn't fill the whole TV. Like there was like the black frame around it, oh, so right, now yeah. it fits the whole TV. And it's just a, it, it's a good looking movie. Like it's something we've never done an episode about art direction, and I would like to at some mm. point because. You know, when we think of art, great art direction, we think of, you know, something maybe medieval or we think of futuristic, but we don't realize that, you know, when we're seeing an old house with a, you know, that a a family lives in every single thing that's on the mantle, everything that's, you know, like in Roseanne, you know, that felt like a house that people lived in, unlike a lot of other sitcom houses. And that was an art direction decision. And so the, the, world of uh home for the holidays just feels so meticulously planned out in such a way so that you don't even really notice it but that it feels familiar it feels like home and so i love that and i just uh and watching it again like i've seen it jen's seen it a million times but this is probably my fifth or sixth time seeing it and i notice something new every time i think it's a really well-written script i think it's beautifully acted um the relationships really come through and it gives, I think it really thematically gives you something to think about, you know, if you ever, if you have like strained relationships with family members and you feel like, oh my gosh, they're so crazy or whatever. And if your family was like, you know, drunken or abusive or says, okay, I get that. But <laughs> if they just have their own quirks and they don't seem to gel with yours, like, yeah, you probably seem like an asshole to them too. Neither of you are in the moral right or wrong here. Um, and that's very much what the what the film is is about. And I really I highly recommend it. If if you haven't seen it, check it out. Um, I remember uh, uh, over the summer for my internship, we were showing a film called Strange Weather um, that starred Holly Hunter, and she was there for the Q and A. And so I got to meet her. And I wish that I had had a, a moment because I would have said like, "Hey, I'm a big fan of Home for the Holidays, and your performance in it especially is just." uh, one of my favorites, uh, of yours. Um, because I, and I think somebody, I think she had mentioned that that was a film she wished had gotten more critical attention at the time and more box office attention. But I, I highly recommend it if you haven't seen it. Um, Holly Hunter is one of my favorite, uh, living actors. Um, and there, with every actor, there's like, if I had to pick one role, if I met them and I could say, I loved you in, what's the one and I always want to pick something they probably don't get all the time yeah but that I truly do love and I think with Holly Hunter it'd be like I love you in A Life Less Ordinary oh yeah she and Delroy Lindo 
uh, are are wonderful together and, and hilarious. Uh, I do think for her having not seen the piano, by the way, um, I think probably home for the holidays or broadcast news. She is pretty great in broadcast news. It's she's hard to beat in that one. Did you ever see little black book? The Brittany Murphy? No, movie? I did not, man. It's not, it's not good, but it's, uh, I've said this on the podcast before. It's a bad movie, but it's not bad in the way you think it is. Oh, good. All right. Um, so it's definitely an interesting movie. All right. Uh, moving on. I finally saw Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk. Right. Uh, on, you know, I think uh, I've established I'm not uh, that big a Christopher Nolan fan. Right. Uh, this is his best movie. I okay. really, really like. Like, I, I, I walked out going, like, that was good. I was like, no, that was the best one since Insomnia. And then, like, by lunch the next day, I was like, that movie was fucking great. Yeah. Um, uh, I think largely because uh, of the paucity of dialogue mm. <laughs> it's not a very talky movie um and it's only you know for for a movie uh, for a christopher nolan movie of this budget and of this uh you know sc- scope uh it's only like an hour and 45 minutes long yeah which is delightful um and uh it's also i think you know narratively kind of experimental i don't know if you know about the structure of the movie i heard about that and it's fascinating to me um uh, and it, it, he's it's a testament to his I think skill uh, in terms of because he did I mean he did certain things with montage and like Dark Knight Rises as as well I think um, that are that are interesting but this is an entire you know telling three different stories that take place over three different periods of time over yeah. the course of one movie um, and it's and it's very well thought out and surprisingly for him for Christopher Nolan, it doesn't feel like overly clever or like a puzzle, right. which is what happens with him a lot. I think, I think he gets a little too caught up in that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and there, but I think it's mostly used, uh, like sort of almost orchestrally, like you're seeing different movements, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, and there is a, I mean, there is a little bit of the cleverness stuff where there's, you know, there is like a, at least one incident that we see three different times from three different angles, but I don't think that's, it, it didn't like feel clever, you know, right. it didn't take me out of it. It felt uh, like necessary and it felt impactful to, to see this um, in three different ways, you know? Um, and uh, yeah, it, it has some, you know, it's harrowing as it should be. Uh, it also has some absolute beauty um, to it. And, uh, yeah, it's definitely my favorite Christopher Nolan film. And I'm glad I, I, I guess I'm glad I waited till I got a chance cause I got a chance to see it on the Warner brothers lot in one of their, their like main theater, which I'd never been in before. It's beautiful. Um, on 70 millimeter. So I'm glad I got a chance. It's being re-released in theaters tomorrow. Oh. Um, which I'm very excited about. Um, yeah. Uh, as you know, there's a thing that I, that I say about war movies and, and like sadly Holocaust movies is that like, I hate to say it, but if you're not bringing anything new, then I yeah. feel like maybe you're being a bit exploitative or at least your film doesn't feel very essential. And everything I've read about Dunkirk is like, he is bringing new things to it, which is yeah. very exciting to me. And I mean, the, the, just the facts of the story are yeah. not your traditional battle type of thing. You know, it's, yeah. a, it's about a retreat. Um, and you know, 
the Germans are bombing them and shooting at them, but until the very end, and even then it's only out of focus, you never actually see a German yeah. in the whole movie until the very, very end. Yeah. Which that's uh let's see i don't think we've ever maybe we did i don't know i've lost track of what we've talked about on the show and what we haven't but um yeah. but the idea of of perspective and point of view uh of the characters when i say pov i don't necessarily mean like from the camera standpoint right. i no, just yeah. mean yeah the way the story is told is something that i've become increasingly fascinated with and at times off-puttingly so like i find a certain idea creeping into my head like a certain feeling of like how things should be. I was like, I don't believe that mm-hmm. stop. Get out of my head. I don't like this at all. You're being very limited in your thinking. Get out of there. So, um, okay. So, uh, this is, there's going to be a lot of rewatches as listeners can probably tell. I'm a little bit under the weather. So I've been rewatching some movies. Um, so, uh, a few weeks ago I was reading through, um, uh, a collection of short stories by Dashiell Hammett. Uh, and I have not, I, I love Dashiell Hammett. He was probably my favorite author. Um, and I realized that I had not seen Miller's Crossing in a while, which while not actually adapted from a Dashiell Hammett work, uh, it is in fact, it is, I would say adapted from all of his work. <laughs> uh, specifically, I would say the glass key and red harvest. Um, and I have not seen Miller's crossing in years. And so yeah, I, that's th- when I actually revisit quite a lot. Yeah, it's, it was, uh, for me. And then I think I just kind of not got tired of it, but it, this happens like after a certain points, like I think I've got it. Mm-hmm. And then years go by. Um, and so I haven't seen Miller's Crossing in, I'd say, well over 10 years, probably, wow. at this point. And uh, first off, of course, I knew this already. It is gorgeous. Uh-huh. Barry Sonnenfeld, DP. Right. Um, and it's just, it, it's so rich. Like, the texture is so rich. And it just really pulls you into this world that isn't 100% realistic, not unlike Dashiell Hammett stuff. Like it's a little bit stylized. Everything, everyone's a little bit too clever. Um, but I love Carter Burwell's music. And I think this time more so than in the past, I really have an appreciation for Gabriel Byrne's performance. Um, you know, you come away from that movie looking like Albert Finney and Marsha Gay Harden and John Polito and John, like all these other characters. Um, because Gabriel Byrne, his character doesn't give you much, but that doesn't mean the actor isn't. And I think his performance is really marvelous and really grounds the film. Um, and it's, like in watching it again, I was like, I really, I think I need to go back in and like reorder my favorite Coen brothers movies. Cause I think I always knew I liked this, but seeing it again now with, I'd say slightly more mature sensibilities, I'd be like, Oh no, that's near the top. That might be like a top five for me as far as the Coen brothers. Um, and as far as gangster movies, it might be my favorite. I don't know. But, uh, but yeah, I, I absolutely adore it. Um, all right. I saw uh, a documentary called human flow, uh, okay. directed by the Chinese artist, Ai Weiwei. Um, and it's, there's a lot of, uh, beautiful, like drone overhead drone photography and a beautiful location shooting in it. Um, but it's one of those movies that I think more works intellectually than emotionally. If you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like it's first off, it's two and a half hours long, which is he- heavy given that it's subject matter. Um, yeah. but it also, it, it's about the refugee crisis. Which one? All of them. Okay. That, and that's kind of the idea is that it's such a bird's eye view in some, in a lot of cases, almost literally, um, uh, that it is, it's really fascinating to realize, like to realize how many people there are, especially these days, um, 
all over the world who were leaving their homes and crossing borders um, and sort of causing us as a global race to sort of rethink what uh, national identity and borders mean and are for, you know, it's, it's a, it's a huge question. And it's definitely a very interesting movie um, uh, for that reason. And you get a lot of perspectives you uh, hadn't gotten in different sort of solutions or non-solutions um, the different, uh, you know, the, the, the countries that people are, Im- are, are immigrating to, um, ha- have come up with you. There's a, a part in a, um, there's a, so there's a Berlin airport that is no longer an airport that has essentially been turned, like multiple terminals have been turned into just like refugee housing. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's because the, these are people just waiting to find out if they're going to be granted asylum or, or, you know, what their status is. Um, and he just like, you know, almost like, uh, Jacques Tati in playtime, just, you look down at these like, yeah. compartments and what used to be an error, you know, uh, a terminal and it's being German is very clean and neat and orderly. Of course. Um, but it's also <laughs> like, these are people's entire lives. These little like rooms that they're, that they're building. Uh, there's a lot of really interesting visual stuff like that. I, d- I definitely think it's a movie worth seeing because it's a topic that I'm, you know, uh, I'm seeing this creep into, I mean, this, this refugee pr- crisis that we're going through, I mean, yeah. especially in Europe, you know, people from leaving Africa and the Middle East and coming into European countries is obviously very much on Europeans' minds because, yeah. uh, um, I mean, two of the movies that I saw at AFI Fest, um, Aki Karazmaki's The Other Side of Hope and Michael Hanukkah's um, Happy End um, deal either directly or obliquely with uh, the refugee crisis. Um, Happy End being a Michael Haneke movie is more about rich people living in Calais, France, which is a major like port that refugees are coming to mm-hmm. and being able to go about their lives while it's happening out of sight, you know, and being able to ignore it. Yeah. Um, whereas The Other Side of Hope, one of the characters is... Um, uh, uh, is a Syrian refugee, look, you know, looking, seeking asylum in, in Finland. Uh, I think this is just going to be more and more a part of European movies, um, in the, in the next few years. Um, and human flow is, I think a good sort of urtext in a way to sort of understand what's going on and where people are coming from, why they're leaving, where they're going to, and what it actually looks like when it's not, you know, it's not a, a newspaper article, you know, mm-hmm. you're actually, you know, this is actually massive amounts of people, uh, on the move. Um, so yeah, human flow. Um, I think it's definitely, you're probably going to be seeing it in a lot of documentary awards lists at the end of the year here okay. because it definitely feels very big and, and important. Um, and it's, it's one of those movies that's more worth watching than it is a great movie. Okay. Um, but uh, you know, it's also directed by Ai Weiwei, who is one of the most, um, I would say, I don't know enough about like, you know, the art world to know if he's one of the most important artists of our time, but I know he's one of the most talked about. Right. Um, uh, and, and so for him to have made a documentary, which I guess he's looking at his IMDb page, he's made short documentaries before he's more known for, you know, uh, art like installation type of art. Yeah. I think, um, uh, it's definitely worth, worth seeing. It's all or nothing with this guy. 10 minutes or two and a half hours. <laughs> yeah, apparently. Um, uh, okay, so here's the thing. My next two movies go together. So I think I'll talk about them together. So I'm back down to 10. Okay. 
All right. I have to make a note for when I do the list on the post. Okay. Again, this is all behind the scenes type yeah, stuff. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, uh, one evening Jen and I decided, okay, the second half was a, uh, a quick decision. Okay. We watched Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows part one. Okay. And then we were like, well, obviously <laughs> we're going to watch, um, uh, Bambi. But, um, no, we watched, uh, part one and part two. Now, as you know, I'm a, <laughs> okay, well explain what's going on here. Oh, uh, so Tyler was, uh, as you know, Tyler was in Asia and he brought me back some squid jerky and I was like, I'm getting a little peckish. We've been, we've been recording for a long time. I was like, Man, I can ease open this bag of squid jerky. Uh, it is pungent. <laughs> Yeah, I haven't even. I can tried smell it, yet. it uh, over here. Oh man, it smells like uh, cat food. Yeah, it smells like squid turned into jerky. I have no expectation of you liking this. Well, we're gonna find out. Okay, all right, oh, listeners. Wow. It is tough. It is very tough. I don't know okay. how you're supposed to eat this. Uh, I think you're supposed to use like a flavored toothpick. Um, that's not true. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't eat this. Maybe you're just supposed to chew on it and spit it out. I don't know. It's very strange. I can't read. I know uh, the instructions are in Japanese. (laughs) Um, Does it actually have instructions? Is it the food with instructions? Probably not. I guess food doesn't really come with instructions. (laughs) I I guess like macaroni and cheese or whatever. I guess that's true. Yeah. yeah. Um, Usually not a bag of snack food. But uh, but yeah, feel free to look it up online and enjoy or not. You feel free to throw it away. It was an experiment and it cost like two dollars. So okay. Uh, So listeners and you. Uh, know that I'm a big fan of Deathly Hallows Part One, mm-hmm. and I'm not a big fan of Part Two. But I always thought that, like, if you were to watch them together, I'll bet Part Two gets better. And sure enough, I was right. Oh man, those things—that stuff smells. <laughs> now I don't know what to do with it. This isn't a resealable bag. No, it isn't. I guess just—I uh, don't know. Throw it outside. Um, but. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, everybody. Um, well, no, don't apologize to them. They don't have to smell it. That's true. Um, I'm sorry to me uh, for for inflicting this on myself. But uh, yeah, there's still a lot of issues with part two. There are still a lot of moments that it feels like, okay, this was never explained. Um, but they just seem to think I will know. Um, but uh, aside, But my problem with part two is that for a long time is that like, it just rushes through everything. And part one is pretty meditative, but when you put them all together into this one, like four and a half hour movie, it works really well. And you realize like it's very set up, set up, set up payoff, mm-hmm. like, you know, basically an hour and a half of payoff and, uh, and it works much better that way. Um, so I'm, I'm happy that I watched them the way that I did. Um, looking at them as their own movies, 7.1 is still like, uh, my maybe my third or second favorite of the series and there's a moment in part one of course which is when uh, harry and hermione are dancing to mm-hmm. nick cave uh that is like one of my favorite moments in the entire series yeah but uh but yeah it's it's uh, and i do think that ray fines is doing great work in both because as he gets more desperate you see a lot more elements to him um because before that it's like okay this guy is the embodiment of evil got it um but then you see him get scared and the moment where he goes to hug draco in part two yeah i love it (laughs) because it it, it's like oh he finally got his way but now what now he's going to now he actually seems to realize what 
oh, right, I'm missing something. I'm missing community. So I guess I'll try to do that now. Oh, it's not working. So there, there's a lot of good stuff in part two, and I think watching them this way really helped that come out for me. Uh, speaking of Ray Fiennes, uh, I watched Chris McKay's The Lego Batman Movie, in which okay. Ray Fiennes voices Alfred and not Voldemort, which is weird because Voldemort is a character in yes. the movie, not voiced by Ray. Fine. Like they had it. Yeah, he's right there. It's just, the being, it's just being handed to you. <laughs> yeah, um, I thought that was funny. Um, also, did you know Doug Benson is the voice of Bane? <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> I didn't realize that. Um, and I know that Conan Bane, O'Brien is the voice of the Riddler. Yeah, um, not a very big part. No, yeah. he says he has one line. Um, but, uh, yeah, I really, really enjoyed the Lego Batman movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think because I feel like we talked about this on the podcast already, or maybe just off the podcast. It's a Batman movie. Mm-hmm. It's not a parody of a Batman movie. It's a, it's a funny Batman movie that is self-aware. Yes. And so there are some in-jokes. Um, you know, I like the reference to, like, um, the Joker's like, this is his biggest plan yet. And someone's like bigger than the plan with the two boats. <laughs> um, uh, I, I like those, those little references. I like, uh, there's definitely stuff, uh, you know, if I had the Blu-ray or, or whatever, there's some stuff I'd be pausing to get jokes. Cause yeah. there's like the line of all the different bat costumes and all of them have little names. And I know I, I know there's a ton of jokes. Oh, sure. I'm missing. Um, um, but, uh, yeah, it's, um, it was really fun. And I think it does, uh, there are certain things you and I say so much because we believe them to be true and believe them to be important. But sometimes I do feel like a broken record saying them over and over again, but it's a comedy that understands how to be funny visually. Yes. Do you know what I mean? I think, um, one of the, like one of the biggest laughs for me is not even really like a, like it's not a, there's no words to it. It's batman microwaving his lobster thermidor mm-hmm. and the way it's just a shot it's just a dark kitchen and he's microwaving the thing and the camera as it were or whatever is behind the microwave so as the plate spins and the light spin you're seeing his shadow yeah like the bat shadow like the cowl and everything sort of move across it's a very batman type of look yeah and it's funny that it's happening because he's <laughs> microwaving the dinner that alfred left out for him yeah it, like i love those kind of jokes um uh, and there's also, uh, I, the, um, who is, who is Barbara Gordon? Is it Elizabeth Banks? Uh, I don't remember. Um, I think so. She's great. Uh, one of the other biggest laughs was the whole, like when she's inter- introduced as the new commissioner and there's like a video presentation mm-hmm. about how she reformed the town of Bloodhaven, uh, using, uh, statistics and <laughs> compassion. Uh, <laughs> there's so many great jokes. I do think, uh, I am part of this. I, this is part of many, one of the many reasons I hate, uh, or I usually don't stay for Q and A's mm-hmm. after screenings. Um, uh, you know, it's mostly because, uh, the questions get annoying. Right. Um, but sometimes it's like, right after I've seen a movie, I don't want this extra information or extra, like I kind of want to form my perspective first, mm-hmm. but I did say this was an award screening and there was a Q and a with the, di- the director and, and the, um, uh, story editor, I guess is what her credit was anyway. Um, and they talked about all the different iterations and I do think there's some stuff you can see in the movie that like there's some threads left, uh, 
uh, especially with, Bar- with Barbara Gordon. She's introduced yeah, yeah. in the movie. Clearly the way her introduction and the first meetings with Batman, is clearly a love interest type of situation. Right. But then they also clearly made the decision of making the movie like, no, this is supposed to be a movie about Batman finding family. Right. And so Alfred and Robin and Barbara, there's no, like it's all platonic. They're right. all supposed to be like, it feels like there are scenes left over from a version of the movie. Sure. That's a romance. Do you know what I mean? Do you think they're simply trying to set it up so that they can subvert it? Um, maybe, uh, but I don't think so. No. Okay. Uh, anyway, but I did learn some fun stuff from the, um, the Q and a, including, um, cause one of the, one of the jokes is that jo- Joker brings, or part of the plot is that Joker brings all the villains, yeah. not just the, Batman rogues gallery, but just like every major villain. Yeah. And so Chris McKay was talking about some of the villains from R rated movies that he wanted that mm-hmm. they wouldn't let him put in like Hellraiser is one, but then he re- mentioned more than once. He really wanted a Lego Annie Wilkes. <laughs> <laughs> to be in the movie. I think that would have been great. Yeah. That's uh, great. Anyway, uh, what's next for you? Next for me is another rewatch. Uh, and it is Ben Stiller's Tropic Thunder. I don't know why I started watching this. It was on Netflix. Hmm. Uh, and it's a movie that I do enjoy. Um, I think it is flawed. I think it could be, I think from a parody and a satire standpoint, it could be a lot better. Um, but I do, I do enjoy it. I still laugh uh, a fair amount. Um, I do think that, Robert Downey Jr. is doing really good work in that. Have you seen the film? Uh, no, I never saw it. Um, he, you know, because his character is that he's this Australian actor. And by the way, he's clearly lifting his, as the Australian, he's clearly lifting his voice from Mel Gibson, um, who he acted alongside uh-huh. in, what is it, uh, Air America? Air America, yeah. Um, and, uh, but then it's this Australian actor who who is playing a black character and he stays in character and so he's doing this very stereotypical voice but within that he is also realizing this fully fledged character it's really fascinating and i'm trying to think like is this offensive i think it is <laughs> i think it's meant to be right and i think it's i think it's wanting me to have this inner conversation yeah which i really like um well the joke from the trailer is when he says what do you mean you people? And the yeah. actual black guy yeah. is like, what do you mean you people? And there's a, there's a moment when he's, he, he's hugging, what's his name? Brandon. Is it Brandon Jackson? Damn it. I don't remember the name of, of the, the other uh, guy that you were talking about. Brandon Sexton the third. That's him. Yes. Yes. He is also doing that. Uh, there are no black, black actors in the film. Um, but, uh, but he's hugging him and he says, and he's like quoting this, uh, you know, he's saying this very poetic stuff and the guy's like, he goes, that's the theme song from the Jeffersons. And then he just <laughs> says like, Hey, just cause it's a theme song doesn't mean it's not true. And he just says it like with a lot of like confidence. Um, it's, it's a, you could do worse from a satire and a parody standpoint. It's still pretty funny. Um, I, d- I do enjoy what Jack Black is doing a lot more than I thought I did. Um, I remember being frustrated that like with his character, cause he's a, his character, he's a, He's a, a comedic actor that is wanting to be taken seriously, so he's in this war movie. Um, but his whole thing is like, 
he is a full-on heroin addict, um, and he is now without his heroin. And so that's basically his big beat uh, at that point. And I remember thinking, like, no, that's kind of limiting, especially like when you're wanting to be taken seriously. We've seen that before. I feel like you could mine more from that. But that is not Jack Black's fault. That is the script's fault. Jack Black is doing a lot of really good stuff, um, like where he just seems to like almost try to unhinge his jaw. He's doing some weird stuff as he's like going through withdrawal and uh i really do enjoy him a lot i forget how much i forget what he is capable of as a comedic performer sometimes remember him in orange county yeah yeah (laughs) it's a kind of forgotten movie but he's like a similar thing like he's playing like a tweaker and you really believe that this guy is like strung out on speed oh yes a lot it's still funny but you really believe it yeah and just uh and i remember you know, I know you're not a big fan of High Fidelity, but I love him in it. And then I really like School of Rock. We both really like that moment when he's presenting at the Oscars and he says, anyways, you guys. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so, yeah, he's I, I, I like his his contribution to the film. And I, I think you would I think you should check it out. I think you would enjoy it. Okay. But again, it's not a it's not a it's a B B minus maybe. OK, um, uh, speaking of B minus, maybe uh, I saw Aaron Sorkin's Molly's game. OK. Um, and it's just like, I'm a, a long time Sorkin fan. And so this movie is in theory for me, mm-hmm. it's his directorial debut. Um, he obviously also wrote it. Um, and I realize I think it made me realize like, maybe it's a little too much for Aaron Sorkin fans. It's, it's the Sorkin thing yeah. ever. Um, which doesn't necessarily make it like bad, bad. Um, you know, it's not, it, it just feels everything that is Sorkin in terms of dialogue is there, you know, the sort of, um, over explaining, um, and, uh, the sort of lack of subtlety in terms of theme, you know, yeah, there's literally, uh, so Jessica Chastain's character, her, father played by kevin costner is a therapist and Mm -hmm. so in the third act there's literally like a essentially a therapy session between them that lays out here's all the reasons that she has done the things that she's done and here's where she is in her life it's it's just so on the on the nose um and then on top of that you've basically got him directing and editing the way you know to his dialogue and so it's you know Again, if you if you're still a big Sorkin fan, you'll probably like this movie. It's just it it left me so flat. You know, his uh, in terms of the way he edits, like I said, it's just to frame the dialogue. There's no sense of uh, there's barely even any sense of real cinema to it. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Um, there's no grace. There's nothing. Uh, the the camera doesn't sort of like pick up things the way it does in a great you know, uh, a great movie. It's just like, you know, back and forth and one shot and yeah. over the shoulder. And, uh, um, uh, but I Would will you say, say he has a TV sensibility visually, at least like, uh, maybe not even maybe, TV yeah. now, but like a network TV sensibility. Uh, maybe, yeah, maybe you're right. Um, 
and what, but I, what I will say is that I think, I mean, I think that he's got a great cast. Yeah. Um, I think unfortunately Jessica Chastain and Idris Elba and to some extent Kevin Costner are too hemmed in by the fact that he overwrites. And what that means is that the supporting cast ends up outshining the leads. Mm. Um, Michael Sarah is incredible um, as a character that uh, is widely speculated to be based on Tobey Maguire, uh, which I'm sure Tobey Maguire can't be happy about because he comes across like a fucking sociopath. Yeah. Um, uh, but also uh, Bill Camp, who's always great in everything, yep. uh, is great. And then uh, in a small role, but a very uh, uh, eventually a very important role, uh, Brian Darcy James is oh, yeah. um, hilarious as a guy who's like, cause you know, the premise is she, she runs another premise. It's, you know, true story. Uh, she's running these sort of, uh, exclusive poker games for very high end, very famous people. And so Brian Darcy James plays a, like a hedge fund manager who's terrible at poker mm-hmm. and is gladly losing like a million dollars a night just because he's enjoying hanging out with stars. <laughs> it's, it's very funny. Um, uh, anyway, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of good stuff in it, but it just, it felt, it feels like, I guess I wanted I wanted Aaron Sorkin to surprise me and there are no surprises. Yeah. That's uh, I did not think there was going to be when I heard he was directing something. I was like, that's, it's not going to be bad, uh-huh. but it's not going to be great. Um, okay. So here we go, David, this is a first time watch for me. Okay. Hmm. Clueless. Really? I've never seen clueless before. Okay. Uh, up until a few days ago. Um, and uh, directed by Amy Heckerling, which and as I, you know, I'm a big fan. Yes, yeah. Um, as a lot of people our age tend to be, um, and uh, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, but you know, by the time it, by the time it got to me, I had already heard that like it's a movie about not super bright characters, but it is itself is very smart. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it's a retelling of Emma, um, and so I think it's. You know, watching this, I totally get why Alicia Silverstone like had a career. Mm-hmm. She's very charismatic, uh, very likable. Even when she's being unlikable, um, you totally buy that she would be popular in school. I'd want to hang out with her. Um, so, yeah, I thought her performance is really marvelous, uh, and the cast in general was was really good. Brittany Murphy, I Brittany love, Murphy, I love her. Uh, unrecognizable says, to me, honestly. No. Like it took Jen having to say, "Do you know who that is?" That's Brittany Murphy, and I was like, "What?" She doesn't really. When I think that's of Brittany Murphy, because I feel like that's the first. That's what I knew her from, right? So and I it's. I think. I mean, I think of her as like from being in, you know. Don't say a word when she's, you know, kind of this skinny, strung out uh, girl. And then that's kind of what, and then she was in Eight Mile and she was in Sin City, always that type of character. And so uh, seeing her young with like curly hair, uh, she's unrecognizable to me. I hope not sporadically. (laughs) That's one of my favorite lines. Um, But yeah, I really, um, and it's always nice to see Dan Hedaya, of course. and uh, it's also astonishing how much Paul Rudd has not aged at all. It's crazy. It's, yeah. He's like the Dick Clark of our time. Um, but I was very happy I saw it. I laughed out loud uh, on several occasions. Um, and uh, I'm very happy that I finally got around to seeing it. Um, yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad you liked it. Uh, uh, I'm sure <laughs> if, 
uh, you may have picked up, but I think one of the most famous like behind the scenes stories about Clueless is that when Alicia Silverstone's character is giving the presentation about Hadians, mm-hmm. uh, that's a thing that Alicia yeah. Silverstone didn't know how to pronounce. And she said it Hadians and Amy Hackling was just telling everybody like, don't correct her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's, you know, and I, of course I feel bad for that story, but at the same time, like, well, maybe if you only ever see it written down. Yeah. And also uh, actors are like, I mean, there's something about an actor, I think a dedicated actor that, just being an actor makes you a, it's a kind of vanity, but there's also a very, I think dedicated actors are also very unvain at the same, Oh yeah. In the same way. And so I think Alicia Silverstone probably was like, I'm glad that was good for the character, you know? Yeah, I think so. Um, anyway, uh, Oh, I closed my stupid thing. All right. What's next for me? Oh, um, I watched this is a bit, a uh, bit late for Halloween. Um, yeah, you'll see there's a couple of horror movies on the list that I just, um, you know, didn't get around to before Halloween. Yeah. Uh, but this is, uh, uh, there's a, 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 this is a Finnish movie I had been meaning to watch for a long time called Troll Hunter. Did you oh, see this? I saw, I watched like 10 minutes of it and then I was like, I don't think I'm in the mood for this. It was years ago, but I, it's, it's really well it's done. Great. Yeah. It's, um, it's not really a horror movie, which is what I expect. It's a, it's a found footage movie, but I feel like, which is annoying because those are overdone, but I also kind of feel like the better and cheaper, like HD cameras get the more tolerable found footage movies are. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? Okay. Cause this is a found footage movie, but it doesn't like look like shit. Right. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, uh, and basically it's, uh, very very Blair Witchy in the sense that it's a, like a college film crew, right? Who are going out to find uh, to to catch poachers who are shooting bears um, out of season, and what they end up finding is a guy who um, hunts trolls for a living. And they uncover this is what I didn't know about it. They uncover a conspiracy that the Finnish government has been keeping for. Uh, you know, its entire existence uh, about the fact that there are trolls in Finland hmm. and there's like only a handful of government people who know. Um, and they're sort of, um, they use these tactics to keep them in certain parts of, uh, of the, of the country, but also have to keep them separate from one another because different troll tribes don't get along. Hmm. Um, uh, and so you, yeah, basically there's, there's one guy whose job it is when a troll gets out of its, um, habitat to is to try and get it back home or more often just kill it yeah. uh, because they're too dangerous. And he has been doing this for decades and he hates his job. And so he sort of, if he sort of invites the camera crew along as a way of like sabotaging the whole thing and like maybe exposing, like he's a whistleblower <laughs> or whatever. It's so like Blade Runner. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I guess that's true. Um, it's a, it's, so it's a way more complex movie than I thought it yeah. was. Again, it's not horror. It ends up being more of an adventure movie, uh, which is, which is great. And it has, um, some pretty terrific, uh, CGI, uh, you know, blended with this handheld, yeah. uh, verite style, uh, of the, of these trolls. Um, it's really interesting and it is also, um, funny. It's, I read online that most of the, most of the actors in the movie are known as comedians in mm. Finland. Um, even though the movie isn't strictly a comedy, it has a lot of laughs in it. Uh, anyway, it, uh, I, I enjoyed it. I'm glad I watched it. All right. So next for me is a documentary called my Scientology movie, which you saw, right? Yes, I did. Yeah. No, thank you. Didn't care. Really? For it. I think I liked it more than that. I can't remember now what uh, I wrote about it, but 
Oh, it's, it's more than that. It's tough because, of course, I was already thinking of going clear. The, do, the HBO documentary about Scientology. And with that in my mind, which is a film that I thought even that was a little bit glib, um, which I understand, you know, we're dealing with Scientology and I try not to be judgmental of how other religions sound because I recognize that mine sounds weird to people. So I don't want to look at it that way. Um, but so I want to try and take it as seriously as possible. But I also think that Scientology is by its very nature, predatory, um, of people. But, uh, and that comes out. And I think in a very sincere and a very heartfelt and emotional way in going clear in my Scientology movie, I feel like it's mostly glib. I think it's mostly, uh, trying to be like provocative, but not in a way that I have any sympathy towards at all. Um, and then they do this thing where they're trying, where they like, they're casting actors as like, David Miscavige and Tom Cruise and and that and it's just and the it, Tom Cruise cracks me up because they never use him they in never any use interesting him. way. There's just a guy who kind of looks like Tom Cruise sitting there. Right. They use the David Miscavige and there's one scene where they use him well. Um, it's not his. I'm not blaming him as the performer, mm-hmm. but like they do this and I was like, okay, yes, but why? You haven't justified doing this. It just seemed everything seems like a conceit, just so that we can all laugh. Which is a thing that bothers me a lot. Here's uh, why. Here, here's where I'll disagree with you. Okay. Because um, I think going clear was definitely interesting as a sort of like overview, um, and it had a lot of facts. You know, uh, uh, that's Alex Gibney, right? Yes. He makes movies that are chock a block with facts. Yes. Um, and I think um, here's what I where I came to with my Scientology movie when you when uh, when you're saying like why are they doing this conceit? What is it mm-hmm. for? And I, re- I think eventually I realized that it's not about uh, Louis, whatever the host, right? And it's not about the people playing David Miscavige. It's actually about the ex Scientologist that's helping him, Marty Rathbun. Yes, Marty, Rath- yeah. And I feel like who's who is in both uh, features yeah. prominently in both. Yes, um, but I feel like what Louis, whatever his name is, I can't remember his name now. Um, I don't recall. Uh, what the director is doing or what the, the host, he's not the director. He's the host of the movie or whatever. Yeah. Um, uh, what he's doing is stealthily trying to, uh, so if, if going clear is about the facts, the sobering, uh, galling facts of Scientology, my Scientology movie is about the psychology of being a cult member. And so he's using these recreations or whatever you want to call them to get Marty back into that place so you can see what this what Scientology did it did to him and how it did it to him and that comes through pretty well and that's why it's in those moments that I don't think it's remarkably glib um and I wish it had been more of that uh especially because you know one thing that it acknowledges you know my Scientology uh, sorry uh, uh going clear looks at Marty Rathbun and the various other ex-Scientologists who are like pretty high up in in the Sea Org um and, but they've since gotten out and they speak out against Scientology and it looks at, at them as heroes, kind of. And this film, I'd say to its credit, although it still doesn't feel right to me, um, is that it, it also acknowledges like, yes, he got out and he's speaking very openly and honestly about what he did and what has been done to him and what has been done, you know, on his watch. Um, 
but he still did, he still did do these things. Mm -hmm. And so we need to maybe not necessarily hold him accountable for it, but we still need to acknowledge that like we want to get him thinking about where he was and how he arrived at a place where this, it was okay to treat people a certain Mm -hmm. way. Um, and I don't think it ever actually does that. I think we, we never get like, I think they try to put him in his mind, his mindset, but he never gets there. He's, he has a very, a very visceral reaction to things, but it's always outside of it. Um, there's a moment when they were, he's going to, when Louis is going to have all the actors come and and applaud for an imagined picture of L Ron Hubbard. Um, and Marty Rathbun is like, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I don't want it. I don't want any part of this. Uh, because getting, even getting the actors to applaud the, this imagined thing is associating something good with that. It's a, it's a brainwashing technique. He's like, I don't want any part of it. Even if it's a recreation, I don't want any. And like, that's a, re- that's a thing in retrospect. And so I feel like I recognize what he's trying to do, but I feel like he never really does it by focusing in on this one guy. I don't know. It's just like, it, I feel like the film has moments of greatness and I, but I think it kind of, it flirts around and, and skirts around it flirts and skirts with a much more interesting documentary. Um, but I think it's too content with, with being provocative. Okay. I think I found Louis unflappable guilelessness sometimes very entertaining. And I guess I found his guilelessness not, uh, to be, uh, false. Um, yeah, I'm which sure it uh, undoubtedly it is. Yes. Yeah. Um, but it's a, I think for someone who is interviewing people, it's a disarming technique. Yeah. And it is also, it is, that's the other thing is like, if you make any film about Scientology, you will eventually come up against like somebody who's representing Scientology, mm-hmm. which is one of the most infuriating things to ever witness, uh, whether it be people that, that come up and see Marty in the airport. Like it's really, it does a good job of creating like the, what it is to be a, to formerly be a part of Scientology and just the hell that they can make your life now, um, as they start to make Louie's life. And so it's, it was interesting, but I just, I feel like the, the gold standard and it's not even that wonderful of a movie is, uh, going clear. All right. Um, oh, I watched it. I'm, I'm hoping this is on your list because okay. this is uh, uh, something you need to see. Uh, have you seen 7852? No, I haven't. Uh, it's the documentary about the shower scene in Psycho. Yes. It's an entire documentary about the one scene. Yes. Uh, it is so up the alley of our kind of film nerds yeah. uh, that it's wonderful to watch, even though I will say... It suffers a bit from, I think, having uh, an overabundance of uh, interview subjects. Okay. Like, there are some people, like, I, I don't want to, you know, point fingers, but, like, it's like, okay, I guess it's cool you got Elijah Wood to talk about this, but, like, not entirely sure Elijah Wood has that much to say, at least for how much you're going to him. Right. Uh, the only time, like, there's a part where we actually watch Elijah Wood watching the scene. It actually... He clearly played the scene. The director played the scene for all the interview subjects Mm -hmm. because there's a number of these things where you just we're not watching the scene. We're watching them watching the scene. And and that's the one part where Elijah would. It's like, oh, here's an actor talking about what she's doing as a performer in this scene. That's interesting. But um, I don't need to hear Elijah. I I don't I shouldn't be picking on Elijah because he's just one of many examples. But I don't need to hear people reiterate how cool 
the scene is. Like, right. we know that. On the other hand, you've got people like Walter Murch, who's talking yeah, very specifically about editing and shot choices. That's fascinating. Yeah. And then you've also got, I'm already forgetting her name, but the movie actually starts and maybe even ends with her, the body double. Jenna Lee's oh, body yeah. double, who within that scene is arguably on screen more than she is, than yeah. Jenna Lee is. Um, and she has a, a has a great memory because she she tells very specific stories, um, and you get so much so much great stuff out of out of her because it's not just her in the shower, also the whole um, cleanup scene. Martin yeah. Bates, that's all the body double wrapped up in the in the sheet and stuff. Um, uh, it's really interesting. It's really just a sort of celebration of a great scene. I would like to I'd like to see this director make just a whole bunch of these type of movies, just pick like iconic scenes from movies and just make a documentary just about that scene. Yeah. You know, like the French connection car chase or something like that. Oh. Like that would be really cool. Uh, if that was just what this guy did. Um, I definitely enjoyed it. I definitely recommend, uh, watching it. It's obviously, like I said, it has some, um, some, some problems, but, the, uh, Oh, they even talked to people who worked on Gus Van Sant's movie. Oh, neat. And they talk about like, um, like there's a shot in the shower scene in Gus Van Sant's movie that isn't in Hitchcock's movie. It was storyboarded in Hitchcock's huh. movie, but, uh, I guess it was felt that, you know, it was too revealing for a movie in 1960 or whatever. Yeah. But like when she falls over the lip of the tub, there's a shot from above where you're seeing basically her entire naked, you know, the back of her body. Right. Um, that Anne Hesh, and they show the Anne Hesh, uh, uh, shot. Um, and I, so there is, a, there's just a lot of interesting stuff you wouldn't have, have thought of. Hmm. Um, yeah. Including, uh, people, this was something I found really interesting. People contradicting one another. Mm-hmm. Um, like a number of people insist that you never actually see the knife touch skin. Oh yeah. That's at not all. true. But there is one shot where it kind of slides along her stomach. Well, what they didn't, then that's the, body double and she talks about that uh that's hitchcock's hand and what he did is he pressed the knife against her stomach and pulled it back and what we're seeing in the shot is just the reverse it's Hmm. just run in reverse um and so that's instead of getting one of those fake knives or whatever right you actually see the knife like in like pushing in not not penetrating her skin but actually like denting into the her belly or whatever yeah uh and and so it's very effective when you run it uh backwards lots of interesting stuff worth watching yeah it definitely sounds like uh like our kind of thing yeah uh all right so next is another documentary um got a nice little uh streak going here uh this is a rewatch it is a movie that jen and i watch every halloween but we were out of town for halloween and so we were unable to see it so we finally watched it and it is michael paul stevenson's the american scream which is yay. <laughs> okay. David is going to go get rid of this horrible squid jerky and I applaud him for it because it smells terrible. Um, <clears throat> but listener, uh, if you've not seen the American scream, do seek it out. It's a marvelous documentary about home haunters all in the same town of Fairhaven, Massachusetts. And they they pick three of them and they're at different levels of quality yeah. uh, and different levels of, I would say humor. There is Victor who is the most professional. He actually goes into the business uh, of haunted houses um, after the film is over. 
and he's very serious and you, and so much so that like you get kind of angry at him sometimes because he kind of takes his family for granted and all that. But just when you, just when you're about to kind of condemn him or just kind of write him off as, yeah, he's good, but he's also an asshole. Um, you hear this, you hear about his childhood and he was raised as a branch, uh, I believe that's what it's called. Uh, and there, there was no celebrating of Christmas, birthdays, Halloween, nothing. And so even his kids say like, I think he's making up for lost time. But then there's Manny who's, who is good, but not a perfectionist, but he's a family man and he loves doing it. And this is really a way for him to bond with his family and with the community. And then there's Matt and his father mm-hmm. who are not really good at all, but they love doing it nonetheless. Um, and so, Basically, the worse you get, the funnier those scenes get. But they're, uh, they also are very sweet at the same time. It's a very sweet movie. Um, and, and it's one of those things that, like, you know, as I think I said when I first saw it, uh, you know, you look at, like, the, the commitment uh, on the part of these people and their, and their families and that sort of thing. And I just think, like, wow, I'm glad I don't have to submit my wife to that, <laughs> uh, subject my wife to that. Um, but then you realize that like, you know, for, for many years we did this podcast in my living room and my wife would have to either stay in the bedroom or be out of the house, you know? Uh, and then when we record our commentaries, like we take an entire room for an entire day. Um, and so like anything that, anything that you are into, whether it be a hobby or a job, it is going to inflict something on the people that love you. And so stuff, the reason I keep that in mind is it keeps me from judging really any of these guys too harshly uh, in the film. And, uh, but it is a marvelous movie. I, I really highly recommend it. Well, speaking of marvelous movies, I really highly recommend that are, uh, Halloween or at least scary related. Uh, I watched the movie called better watch out. It's a new horror movie which I predict we're going to be talking about on our main episode this week. We're talking about Christmas movies because it's a Christmas horror movie um, in which uh, um, Levi Miller plays the, uh, uh, who's Pan uh, in Pan. Yeah. um, Plays a kid. So him and the babysitter, it's basically a home invasion horror movie. Okay. Um, uh, And him and the, the babysitter's like 18 or whatever. Um, and, uh, the parents played by Virginia Madsen and Patrick Warburton, um, right. are out for the night and there's a home invasion and, uh, that's the basic premise. It's, it's like home alone. Uh, it's very, it's more, it's more like home alone than, you know, actually, okay. <laughs> but, um, um, it, I, I don't know how much to say about it because it does have, it has more than one twist. Okay. Uh, it, it so much so that I, <laughs> it's a good ad- podcast. Um, <laughs> it's a joke I'm going to make every time uh, you say more than sure. one. Um, I'll admit that for the, in the, within the first, like by, by the time we were like about a half hour in, I was actually kind of losing patience with the movie because I felt that I had figured out the twist. Okay. But then like right after that, the twist happened. And then I, you know, and I was like, well, there's still a lot of movie left and you know, I wonder where this is going to go from here. And it really delighted me by repeatedly, upping the ante mm-hmm. uh, on uh, on how uh how fucked up the movie uh, could be nice and it also i think it also has i can't say i i think it has some um things to say uh um that are very 
um, relevant to today, but I can't really say what they are without kind of hinting at what oh, the twists okay. are. But I think, um, let's to use the, um, social justice warrior shorthand. I think the movie addresses in more, in more than one way, the idea of quote unquote toxic masculinity. Oh, okay. Um, uh, but it's not a preachy speechifying movie. It's, uh, it's a fucking sadistic movie, um, but uh, it's it's never not entertaining, um, and uh, or or surprising. And um, I hope it becomes a Christmas classic for people who like um, bloody movies. All right, I'll definitely have to check it out. Uh, next for me is a is a horror film directed by Jackson Stewart called Beyond the Gates. Um, which, uh, I had heard a little, I hadn't heard anything about, but I had heard of it, uh, came out last year and, uh, it's a little indie, uh, horror movie that owes a lot to the 1980s. Barbara Crampton is in yes. it, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and it's about these two brothers who are kind of estranged, uh, and their father has gone missing and their mother is long dead. Uh, and so they, one of them still lives in the hometown and then the other one comes back to sort through their dad's things and their dad owned a video store, which I believe is shot at Eddie Brant's. Um, and, uh, and they find one of those old VHS board games, you know, where you pop in a VHS and, uh, this one is horror themed and the game seems to, it's like an evil Jumanji where it seems to, uh, address them specifically. Um, and there are things they have to do, that result in some pretty impressive gore um, uh, on the part of other people in order to complete the game. And, uh, you know, it shows its budget sometimes, but uh, thematically it actually has some interesting stuff to say about like grief and moving on and stuff like that, uh, which I really appreciated. The acting is fairly solid. Um, there's a couple from a screenwriting standpoint, there's a couple leaps where the characters like accept this a little bit too quick. Um, but by and large, just, it's a, it's a fun little, uh, indie horror movie that I, I'm, I'm glad I watched. It's nice to watch stuff like that from time to time. And uh, I'm glad I did. It's on Netflix so you can seek it out. Uh, um, I watched another documentary. All right. I got to stop eating the I'm eating turkey jerky now just to, okay. Cause I'm hungry and also just to get the, um, smell of the squid jerky. It's an interesting blend of smells now. I got to say from over here. All right. I'm done. Uh, I watched a documentary, another documentary called city of ghosts directed by Matthew Heineman, who made a cartel land a couple years ago. Um, did you see either of these movies? No, uh, city of ghosts was nominated last year, right? Um, Oh, I thought it no, I don't think so. I think it's a this year movie. Oh, okay. Um, oh, never mind. Okay, yes, now I remember. It was it was on like the short list. I was like, I seem to recall it being on a list. It was on like the short list of like movies that we were gonna show for my internship okay. that we wound up not doing. Well this is you know, um I got uh, I got to thinking while I was watching this movie about how when we talk about movies as art, I think most things that are important pieces of art are things you can revisit. Do you know what I mean? Yes. You know, that's why movies stand the test of time. That's why we're still watching, I don't know, Chinatown. Sure. Uh, not a bad example. I shouldn't we, talk about we, Roman Polanski movies right now. Oh, okay. Um, right? Sure. Um, yeah. Right. Uh, okay. Anyway. Um, 
but there's a certain type of documentary that is like, I don't even know if like, there's still an art to filmmaking, but this is more journalism than art. If that makes sense. Sure. And I don't think city of ghosts is meant to be something that you buy on Blu-ray and like are going to throw in years from now. It's yeah. very specific and very topical. Um, and, uh, I don't know how to feel. I don't know how to feel about the movie. This sounds like maybe an episode we can do at some point. Okay. Um, but, uh, just, you know, movies that are meant to be enjoyed or not enjoyed, uh, meant to be watched when they come out and not meant to. Oh, sure. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so I, I feel like all of this is me sort of dancing around or maybe like an apology for recommending a movie that is so hard to watch and also is not going to be something that is, you know, um, uh, appreciated for generations to come probably. Yeah. Uh, but it's very important. Um, it's about, well, it's about, um, one of my favorite topics and one of the favorite topics of, uh, one of our past guests, uh, citizen journalists. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm drawing a blank on our guest, uh, Eric Matthews. Uh, yes, yes. Yes. Um, specifically about the organization Raqqa is being slaughtered silently which is uh, Raqqa is a town R-A-Q-Q-A is a, uh, a city in Syria and it is sort of the Syrian home base of ISIS. ISIS took over after the sort of um, uh, the, the Syrian protests in which they uh, Raqqa was one of the most vocal sort of anti-Assad cities that was like tearing mm-hmm. down statues and um this movie is uh, at least in the early part is very much about how, what can happen when there's an, a vacuum of power, you know? Yeah. Um, and what can happen when you have a sort of revolution without the next step planned? Um, cause what happened was suddenly no one was running things in Raqqa and ISIS came and took it over. And essentially the entire city is ISIS controlled now. Mm-hmm. And so there's a group of men and women who, uh, started a, you know, serious, you know, personal risk to themselves, uh, a group of, uh, you know, a website telling stories, telling people what's happening, yeah. reporting on ISIS. Um, and so we get a lot of footage from them and then they eventually, um, are, um, you know, granted sort of emergency asylum because some of their member members are killed and mm-hmm. ISIS has made, uh, not at all veiled threats against basically anyone who they basically say like anyone who is a member of rock is being, uh, slaughtered silently, um, will get, uh, killed if they, if they are found. So right. they end up getting granted emergency asylum first in Istanbul, uh, and then in Berlin. Um, and, uh, the movie just doesn't let up, uh, uh you know, and because it's from the point of view of the people who like yeah. are living with, the constant threat of being murdered and yet are still doing their jobs. And I think it's what becomes most interesting about it, uh, because the, the movie is so harrowing. You see so much, you see so much violence that, you know, you wish you couldn't see, wish you didn't, wish didn't have to see you, wish didn't exist. Um, but the way that they carry on is not, you know, it's not sort of like, there's no, you know, St. Crispin's Day speech or anything. There's yeah. no like, uh, you know, shouldering under and stiff upper lip and carrying on. Like they're, they're tired and they're scared, but they're also so used to it that they're not outwardly scared. And yeah. they're just like, 
they just keep doing it. And it's sort of a very, I would say, inspirationally almost banal picture of, yeah. of, uh, of, uh, um, commitment, you know, um, yeah. to a cause. It's, it's really a powerful movie. Um, but it is heavy. You will see people get shot in the head. It's yeah, it's, a uh, um, uh, it's not an easy watch, but definitely worth, worth watching. And maybe you want to, I don't know. Maybe you want to kill some people. <laughs> oh, all right. Um, it, there's, I mean, no, I, I understand. There is an anger. I like, I don't know. You know, ISIS is not something that it's not another, you know, it's not a foreign power, you know, it's right. a group of incredibly well-organized thugs, um, uh, who are, you know, okay. This is going to get, uh, to get into politics a little bit. All right. Um, there's a thing, there's a term, there's a, a term that, uh, you know, I, I don't find myself and never found myself agreeing with Donald Trump much on anything. All right. <laughs> but during the campaign, where we're when he here. was campaigning, he used to constantly harp on like, why doesn't president Obama use the term radical Islam? Right. Basically he was, because Donald Trump's an idiot. He was, uh, implying that Barack Obama was soft on terrorism because he wouldn't use the term sure, radical sure. Islam. Um, and so I never agreed with Donald Trump on that, but I also never had a problem. I don't tend to, you know, because I don't really differentiate between religions. I'm an atheist. I don't really, none of them mean that much to me in terms yeah. of, uh, whatever. So I never had any problem with the term radical Islam. Um, and then of all people, it was Trump appointee McMaster mm-hmm. who I first heard, like really explain why diplomatically it's good not to use that term, mm-hmm. which is, uh, I don't know, maybe you already know what, where I'm going with all this, but basically like, well, you know, uh, actually, you know what? I thought of you because do okay. you remember a few summers ago, there was that awful in Norway, that guy who killed like 70 teenagers. Um, anyway, I remember talking to I you feel about bad it because, that I don't remember because but. he did it as for self-proclaimed Christian reasons. Right. And your reaction was that man is not a Christian, yeah. you know, and to, you know, a different extent, there's a reason that the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints doesn't want you referring to the people who kidnapped Elizabeth smart as, um, Mormon fund- fundamentalists, right. because their argument is they're not Mormon at all. Yeah. And so, um, I think general pastor explaining this sort of thing and then actually seeing it in, in city of ghosts, I really understand like the reason that we don't call them radical Islamists is because they're not Islamists. They're not Muslim. These guys, these guys who are dedicating their lives, mm-hmm. these are Muslims. These are devout Muslims who care about people. Um, and, and, and are trying to represent, not just trying to represent their religion, but are motivated by their religion, by their beliefs right. to do these acts of heroism and to, and to care for people and to help people. And, and so it really sort of, I think through in through into relief for me, just how not Muslim ISIS is. Yeah. There's this, there, there's a, you know, I, I chuckled when you said it made you want to kill people, but I totally get it. There's this feeling of when people do something destructive with impunity, mm-hmm. when they do it, knowing no one's coming after them, that is so infuriating. Um, and of course with, with ISIS, it's like, well, of course everybody hates them. People are coming after them. I think, you know, uh, and so, 
but it's just like whether it be the horrible shit that like Joseph Stalin did or the Nazis or any, any time like people in power are like, we can do what we want because we're in power and people are now dying as a result. Mm-hmm. It's just like, no, you don't get to do that. Exactly, That's not yeah. how this fucking works. So you are going to be held accountable and I'm going to do it. I'm yeah. going to smash you in the head with a rock or yeah, something like that. Like that's it's, what I wanted. I wanted to go over to Raqqa yeah. and like call him out yeah. and beat their brains in. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a very, it's, it's, it's a weird thing cause I don't consider myself a violent person, but there's just, there's just this desire for like justice, yeah. you know, like I, I I don't mean to imply social justice is not just, but I mean like the good old fashioned sure wet, like <laughs> uh, John Wayne like justice has come to this town yeah. and you are now all gone. Yes, I totally get what you mean. Yeah, it made me furious. Anyway, definitely worth watching. City of Ghosts. Okay, uh, so it's on it's on Prime if you have it. Uh, I watched a film directed by Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris called Battle of the Sexes. Uh, you've seen it, right? No, I haven't watched it yet. Okay. Um, it's fine. It's good. It's, it's, it's somewhat effective. Uh, I think, uh, from a storytelling standpoint, it, it moves along in a pretty good clip. It is appropriately dramatic and comedic. Um, I think it, it does, um, lock into the attitude of the time. Um, you know, those that don't know, it's a Billie Jean King uh, uh, going against Bobby Riggs in this big tennis match uh, that is supposed to be like, uh, you know, he she's like the best women's tennis player. And he is a 55 year old uh, former men's <clears throat> champ. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he challenges her to this and he plays like, oh, I'm I'm a male chauvinist and these women. He was playing all that up for cameras uh-huh. because like a, it's a good way to like <laughs> to uh, get people watching, which means everybody makes a lot more money. Um, he was uh, he had a horrible gambling problem, <laughs> as it turns out. Uh, and that's the thing is, I do think that the film here's the here's, I think, a flaw with it. I think it goes so far out of its way to humanize Bobby Riggs, and that's to its credit. Because we th- we think of him as like this over the top villain in this story, uh, but I think it makes it very clear like he's playing this up. He d- like he's he's on a first name basis with like all of the female tennis players. They all know mm-hmm. him. He knows them. He's fine with them. But uh, he sees an angle and he works it, uh, and it does such a I think a solid job of of humanizing him that I think they forget to humanize. Billie Jean King. She, I think is seen. It's not Emma Stone's fault. She does a a fine job, but she would have done as good of a job if they'd given her more to play than just what she represents. Do you know what I mean? Like she represents women's equality. And then she was, she was a, for a while, a a closet lesbian. So it's like, she represents that. She represents like this, this repressed person fighting for this stuff. Now, of course that's why we're watching the movie, but I feel like I don't really know what's behind her, like what's going on in her head, what she's, why she's feeling the way she's feeling. It's tough. Anytime you, any, you run the risk of this with any biopic, whether it be an artist or a musician or a politician, like you don't want to over, you don't want to try uh, making it a clumsy attempt at over explaining why they're doing what they're doing. But you also need to be careful to not just show us the stuff we know. And there's like, yeah, I know that already. So I feel like 
oddly enough, she's still the lead and, 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 and Bobby Riggs is still supporting, but oddly enough, they, I think Mm. they put more time into developing him than her. Let me ask you this. Okay. About Emma Stone. Okay. If that stuff were in the screenplay, if it were more nuanced Mm -hmm. and deeper, would Emma Stone be the right actor for it? Because here's my question. Okay. The risk of sounding mean, because this is going to sound mean. Okay. I'm a fan of Emma Stone. Is Emma Stone a good actor or is she a movie star? I think she can be both. Um, I think she's a movie star. Maybe she, uh, yeah, she's a movie star. Um, I think maybe she is a good actor and we just haven't, I mean, what, what roles has she been called on that are, uh, have, have really asked her to dig deep? I thought she was really good in Birdman. Um, I, I thought she had to do, but that's not her fault. I don't, I don't like any, <laughs> I don't like pretty much anything about Birdman. I thought, I feel like she brought a lot of disparate elements together in that film to create a fully fledged character, um, who is frustrated with things that she has done, but she also is angry at her father. And she's, I don't know. I, I thought she did a really good job in that. I think she did. I think she's very good, if not great in La La Land, but she's not, that's a movie star role. Yeah. She's she not is. asked to dig very deep. Yeah. Um, I know it sounds silly, uh, as, as bad as those amazing Spider-Man movies are. I think she's very good in them. Um, I never saw the second one, but I think you, I think, I think you might be right. I think that she's, probably not the most developed uh, actor, but I think she, and maybe her being a movie star, like that might be a help or a hindrance to that. Um, and, and, and maybe, you know, she's still very young. She, maybe she yeah. could be a Tom Cruise who is a movie sure. star first and then becomes a great actor. Absolutely. And then, or back, Will and Smith. then back to movie star mm-hmm. um, or Will Smith. Yeah. Um, but you know, it would be interesting to see somebody, like I think uh, Jenna Malone, who has been uh, turning in some really great performances in the last few years, I'm a big fan. It'd be interesting to see what she could do with the with the character. But um, I think I think if that stuff were in the script, I think she would be able to rise to that challenge. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's still a movie worth seeing. It's still you know it, it's from the people that made Little Miss Sunshine, a movie that as you know I really really do not like, <laughs> um, and this is uh, infinitely better than that. Uh, I think it really balances tone a lot better, uh, and you know there are times that I like Steve Carell and times that I don't. I think he's at his best when he's playing a guy who is himself a showman, um, and that is Bobby Riggs. And so I you know there's a reason that he does well playing Michael Scott on the office. And it's because mm-hmm. Scott is always performing. Right. Uh, and that's how Bobby Riggs is. And I think Steve Carell does a great job. All right. Um, I watched the movie that despite, you know, having already read some reviews, I had high hopes for, and they were dashed. Okay. Uh, uh I watched, um, I'm already forgetting the guy that directed Dan, Dan Gilroy's Roman J. Israel Esquire. Ah, I was excited because much like you, I was a big fan of Nightcrawler. Yes. Um, this is no Nightcrawler. You know, I know Nightcrawler. <laughs> you, Roman J. Israel Esquire, are no Nightcrawler. Um, and I'll tell you why. Both of them are, in a sense, morality plays. Mm-hmm. Nightcrawler, I think, has the guts to let the immoral side of its story have its day in court and actually be seductive and you see like you you're seeing everything from 
yeah the point of immorality and you're seeing how it works for him and like there's and you there's hear that heroic score mm-hmm. and you're like oh this is completely from his point of view I, and i love that yeah uh this movie on the other hand is so unrelentingly moralizing mm. uh i was sick of it well i mean it has a um in media res beginning that i hated uh and then it sort of jumps back and i was like okay getting into this. And then I very quickly became sick of it and stayed sick of it for the next hour and a half or whatever. It's, uh, I mean, Denzel, I like Denzel Washington. I especially like when he plays roles like this one or in the Manchurian candidate remake where he's, um, to go back to what I was saying about actors before, where he's unvain, you know, he's, he's not, uh, Roman J. Israel is not a character who's, uh, in control socially, you know, he's, uh, probably you know a little bit on the spectrum if we were you know the movie doesn't hammer on that but that's probably uh where where he is um but he's also an idealist um so he's prickly and difficult and schlubby uh and i like i like what denzel washington is doing it's just the 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 screenplay won't let you think for a second yeah uh yeah yeah there were my wife and i saw it together and we uh we spent the we we saw it at a theater we can walk to. We spent the walk home, basically laughing at the movie hmm. uh, because of how dumb it is. So wow. uh, unfortunate. That's unfortunate. Uh, okay, so last for me is a rewatch. It's a film I've seen many times at this point. But my brother in law is in town and he hadn't seen it, and I thought he would like it. Uh, and it is David Fincher's Zodiac, mm. uh, which. It just it gets better every time I see it. I, I already think it's a masterpiece, uh, and it's just it is such a fascinating film. It's kind of an ensemble piece. It's sprawling. You know, one thing that I noticed this time is there are scenes, and it'll say three days later, two and a half weeks later, two months later. Like you realize mm-hmm. that this film is just jumping along in time, and it kind of forces you to realize like, yeah, this case just, even when they were in the midst of it, when it wasn't really considered a cold case anymore, uh, or, or before it was considered a cold case, like even when they were in the midst of it, there would still be weeks that go by months that go by without hearing from the Zodiac killer. Like it was just this very strange anomaly where it's not like, Oh, there are these, these six killings that happened in three weeks or, or something or, or a month and a half. Like it was just, it was all spread out and you never quite knew if he actually, if the Zodiac killer actually killed somebody or if he was simply taking credit for something that someone else had done. Like it, it was so, and the reason he's able to do that is because the role that the media plays. And I don't mean to say complicit, you know, they're reporting the news, uh, and it's very easy for him to hear uh, about an unsolved murder and just say, I'll take that one. Mm-hmm. No problem. And so it just, you know, another thing that struck me with watching this time is you go a good long while before you ever see a cop. You see reporters before you see cops. Hmm. You see Jake Gyllenhaal and Robert Downey Jr. for like at least 25, 30 minutes before uh, Mark Ruffalo shows up. Uh, and it like it speaks to the way the Zodiac Killer is thinking. He's thinking in terms of newspapers first tv first and cops later uh and just like all the the way all this stuff just plays into it uh plays into each other um is really fascinating and it just makes you wonder like you know like 
Jack the Ripper was around, certainly. Uh, and so did serial killers, were they just around and were just like underreported? Or did the rise in serial killings uh, happen as a function of them being reported? Not that I'm blaming the media for that. Like, this is these are big stories, so obviously you would want to tell them. But it, it speaks to that idea of like the guy who just wants to see his name uh, on the screen or his face or, or a symbol that he has represent him. Uh, it's the film gets me thinking about different things. Every time I watch it, I have appreciation for different performances. Every time I watch it, uh, I adore this film. Did you happen to read the, um, we talk about the AV club so much, the John Carroll Lynch, Lynch interview in the AV club. a while ago. Yeah. 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 When he talked about, yeah, he fully played the character as innocent. He believes the character is innocent. Yeah. Which means he's it's like in a way to play that character, to play that character is innocent. Seeing how he's written is almost more judgmental than if you were to play him. It's like, Oh, he's just a full on freak. If he'd killed people, then you're playing him more. You're playing him straighter. Um, but yeah, uh, one is still, and of course that's still a marvelous performance. My other favorite thing from that interview was him talking about being on the set of Shatter Island and being sort of like, uh, Martin Scorsese caught him just sort of like staring at Max von Sydow and Martin mm-hmm. Scorsese said, I know, right? What the fuck do you say to the guy? <laughs> 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 All right. Um, Tyler. Yes. The movie I'm about to talk about is so great. There's, I've seen a f- number of great movies, but there's two of them that I can't talk about yet. Okay. Um, we'll catch up with them on, on the movie journal when you see them, uh, inevitably, I'm sure. Uh, cause it'll be after the embargo. Oh yeah. I think, but the one I can talk about that, uh, is coming out tomorrow in limited release, uh, as the time we're recording this Guillermo del Toro's the shape of water. Okay. Now listen, when I say about most movies, this is the best movie this director has made. Mm-hmm. That's a compliment. When I say it about Guillermo del Toro, who has made so many great movies indeed, and also Pacific Rim, um, they can't all be winners. <laughs> it means something yeah. like it is. I love Guillermo del Toro movies so much that it is painful for me to admit that this is the best movie he's ever made. Sure. Because I have to then like knock things like Pan's Labyrinth and the devil's backbone and, uh, blade two, which I love, mm-hmm. uh, down a peg. Um, but the shape of water is so perfect and so beautiful and so Guillermo del Toro mm-hmm. because it is, it's full of heart and it has, it's a, it's a true love story. Um, but it's also, uh, it also earns its R rating with its gore and its sex. Yeah. Uh, and I, and I feel like Guillermo del Toro is, del Toro is, is someone who can really blend that sort of, uh, you know, the, gore and sex and heart and whimsy um and monsters yeah. you know and he can put it all together so perfectly it's uh it's it's maybe the truest uh well i think it is the 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 closest any movie he's made has gotten to being inside his head mm-hmm. i think um it it looks, I wasn't, I wasn't prepared for, because I hadn't read any reviews. Uh, I think other reviews did now that I've read some did mention this, but, um, I was not prepared for how like Amelie the movie is. Um, Oh, and, interesting. Uh, it, it, I had seen a trailer and I remember like visually and like from an art direction standpoint, it did remind me of that. Definitely. Uh, yeah, definitely the art direction, the, the use of green, everything is green everywhere in mm-hmm. the movie, but also, um, 
Sally Hawkins is sort of Audrey Toto like. Yeah. Um, and also uh, the score, which is by Alexander Desplat. I'm not sure. I'm not sure who did the Amelie score, but it has the same like accordion, even though it doesn't take place in France. It has yeah. that sort of, you know, old time Francie type music or Parisy yeah. type music. So it's almost um, as though Guillermo Toro saw Amelie and he said, yeah, it's pretty good. Not enough monsters and not enough <laughs> blood. How do yeah. we make this happen? Yeah. Um, but then it's also, um, you know, we th- I think we think of Del Toro as someone who makes these sort of fantastical movies, but it's mm-hmm. also very tapped into the real world, much like much like Pan's Labyrinth was. It's and Devil's Backbone in a way. It's a very it's a political movie mm-hmm. um, because it, you'll notice as you watch it that um, most of the main characters are sort of outsiders in a way. Right. Um, Telly Hawkins is mute. Richard Jenkins is gay. You've got Octavia Spencer, who is black at a time the movie takes place in the late fifties, early sixties, mm-hmm. you know, um, not that it's any, you know, not, not that it's a breeze being a black person in America today. Um, you've got all sorts of people, all sorts of immigrants, even in small roles, you've got like, um, uh, Sally Hawkins apartment is above a movie theater. The guy who owns a movie theater has a thick accent of some, you know, mm-hmm. unknown origin. The guy who runs the, pie shop that Richard Jenkins has a crush on is Canadian. There's like full of immigrants. And I think even it's even very clear that the Doug Jones's character, um, the, the sea creature, uh, is from South America. Like, I think the movie is very aware hmm. of it being a sort of immigrant America, America story, um, and being set in a time that is sort of, now seen as being, uh, you know, uh, less, you know, uncomfortable for people who are outside the norm mm-hmm. and also being released in a time when that is, uh, happening. Uh, not that it ever really went away, but it was really at the forefront again with, mm-hmm. uh, with Donald Trump in the, uh, in the, in, in the white house and talking about, you know, you know, very fine people on both sides and retweeting right. you know, these anti-Muslim things. And like, he's, uh, he's, Donald Trump is making it even more um, difficult to be an outsider. Um, and even though Guillermo del Toro's point is that these aren't outsiders, these are Americans. Right. Uh, well, I mean, I think the Canadian is, I don't think he has citizenship. I think that's made clear. Get but, him um, out of here. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I say. <laughs> um, um, uh, and so I, I definitely think he's telling a story of there's even Russian bad guys to tie it into, hey, all right. into today. Um, uh, and you've got a, a great cast. I mentioned Sally Hawkins. Our friend Doug Jones is fantastic. Um, and, uh, um, Octavia Spencer and Richard Jenkins, those four together are sort of the, um, the oceans 11, but four of the yeah. movie. Uh, cause it actually does have like, you know, they, they're the fantastical four. <laughs> yeah. But it does have like a heist type of store plot to it because they have to break Doug, Doug Jones out of this, yeah. uh, secret government facility where, where Sally Hawkins and Octavia Spencer are, uh, janitors. Right. Um, uh, but then you've got, um, uh, the, the staff at the, the two main characters who work at the, um, as facility, facility yeah. are uh, Michael Shannon um, as a bad guy and Michael Stuhlbarg as a you don't know sure you know, he's certainly clearly working for the bad guys and he definitely seems like a bad guy but maybe he's got a 
He's got a bit of heart to him. Maybe there's something else going on there. I could see that. Uh, yeah. Uh, and also, uh, Nick Cersei shows up for a couple of scenes. All right. Um, and he'll be in the next movie I talk about as well. Um, so yeah, the, the shape of water is absolutely, um, uh, it's beautiful. It's the best movie Guillermo del Toro's, uh, ever made. I can't wait to watch it again. All right. All right. Next up. I'm a little less enthusiastic about Martin McDonough's three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. And I don't, I don't, I, I really don't want to feel like I'm part of the backlash because last year La La Land was the movie that got early raves and then had a mm-hmm. backlash. And I was, it was, it was painful to me to be a part of the, you know, people in the right who loved La La Land. Sure. And I don't want to feel like I'm, uh, betraying people who love three billboards because people do see a lot of people seem to love it. They do. But the more people see it, the stronger the backlash seems to be getting. Um, I feel like even like my, my Twitter feed, at least my version, my little corner of film Twitter has mostly turned against three billboards hmm. uh, with a couple of notable exceptions. Our friend Aaron Newworth is a big fan. Um, uh, I know, um, uh, Jason Bailey from flavor wire and Pajiba is a big fan. There's people I follow who are still big fans, but, uh, I just don't see, I even like was trying to see it and I don't, uh, I don't get it. There's some, there's some laughs, but there's no, um, there's less poetry than I expected in the, in the dialogue. Um, and also, I don't like anybody in the movie. <laughs> I don't necessarily need feel that I need to like, the characters, you know? Yeah. But, um, you know, in, in every movie, I don't need to like, uh, you know, it's okay to make a movie about unlikable people, I guess, but I don't, I don't like them and I don't believe them. Yeah. Which is not, I, I want to make it clear because some of the complaints I've seen about the movie is uh, along the lines of like, nobody talks like that. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. You can have like, you can have worlds and characters that are, different from reality but there has to be an honesty to them you have you have yeah. to believe that they belong there and that they exist in this place and i don't think there's a single character in the movie uh that i really believe the closest one that i the actors i think all do their best and i think sam rockwell does what he can to like bring all these different elements together i think the character i believe the most and even then i don't like a lot of the stuff that he does is woody harrelson like i believe him as a decent cop who's trying his best but there are so many beats that they have him play and so many elements to his character that I'm like, Oh, come on. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. Without, yeah. I don't want to give stuff away because a lot of people still haven't seen it, but right. yeah, there are places it goes with his character, uh, that I was, that felt, you know, like it felt like the screenplay, not the character. You know what I mean? Very much so. Um, there's a, there's a handful of laughs for sure. Um, I definitely like, uh, the, um, the news reporter saying like, will this bring an end to the saga of the three billboard? Just as Charles McDormand is driving by and she's like, it's just the beginning. You fucking idiot. Or whatever. And like, yeah. uh, put that on your fucking good morning, Missouri or whatever. Yeah. And then the biggest laugh, which I, which I've since realized is in the trailer, um, or in the, in the red band trailer, um, is when Francis McDormand walks in the police station. It says, Hey, fuckhead. And Sam Rocco goes, what? And the great Zelko even says, don't say what Dixon, when she comes in calling you fuckhead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That part made me laugh. I feel like, yeah, 
Zelko even act like I wanted to see more from him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think his character is simply called the desk sergeant. He does, isn't even given a name, but he's just there. And pretty much everything he says is great. Yeah. Um, even uh, one character after getting fired just says, says to him, I think I just got fired or maybe suspended. And Zelko goes fired (laughs) 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 in case there's any confusion. Yeah. You've been fired. Um, all right. And then I guess the last movie for me, um, uh, before we move on to a little bit of TV. Uh, okay. All right. I try not to, I love that. I have to give a big preamble. Okay. Here we go. I do it for every movie. No, it's, uh, is it? I, I, I don't know. I don't anyway, notice. It's fun to me to give a little preamble. I have trained myself to try to not get too excited for movies when I hear they're coming out because of how often I end up being disappointed. Yes. Or how often I'll hear about a movie and the final version won't be the movie that I, the type of movie I got into my head. But like a year ago, almost, when I heard that Margot Robbie, Robbie would, be, would be playing Tanya Harding, I was super excited. Okay. Because I love Margot Robbie. Robbie. I don't know how you say her last name. Um, and also, ever since I watched that 30 for 30, The Price of Gold, about Tanya Harding, I've been yeah. really invested in this story and in a certain way of giving Tanya Harding a kind of... Uh, a pass? I hear you. No, like a justice. Like, to see, like, you know she got a really bad rap from the media, you know, yeah. in terms of from the courts, you know, we don't, we still don't know to this day, you know, in, in Nixon terms, terms, what she knew and when, you know, right. we know she didn't break Nancy Kerrigan's knee yeah. kneecap. Um, she wasn't there. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I can't say whether I can't attest to her actual guilt about the situation, right. but as far as her life and how shitty it was and how much, the media in the story and even the ice skating world, you know, um, latched onto that and sort of drove her down deeper into the dirt to sell their story or to make yeah. the ice skating world what they wanted it to be, um, is really tragic to me, but also it would be a bummer if it were just, a and sort of outrageous tragedy or whatever, because she's Tanya Harding herself is a very colorful character. Mm-hmm. And so, what I want to say is that Craig Gillespie, despite my not having seen any of his movies or wanted to have seen it, like I don't think he's made a single movie that I was interested in seeing. Well, let's see. Uh, he did I, Lars and the Real Girl, which I never saw. Yeah, I don't. I don't care for that one. Yeah, um, and he did uh, some other stuff that I haven't seen. Uh, he nailed it with Itania. Itania is. I'm glad. I'm glad I let myself get my hopes up because Itania is the type of Tanya Harding movie that I wanted when I heard this was going to be made. It's a dark comedy. Um, and it's also well aware that we don't know the truth Mm -hmm. and it has, it has a conceit of having, you know, it takes place from roughly the early eighties until the event in the, in the trial in 1994. Mm -hmm. Um, or I guess the event, the, the incident as they call in the movie with Nancy Kerrigan, I think is 93 but the Olympics were in 94. I have no idea. I can't remember. And I literally just watched it last night. Uh, but then there's also the sort of framing device is interviews with four of the main characters. Um, um, that would take, that were recorded. I mean, within the conceit of the movie that you had 98, 99. So with, with the distance of like 
four or five years. Yes. Um, and so you've got, um, Margot Robbie as Tanya Harding. You've got, um, uh, Bucky as Jeff Glulie. What's his name? Sebastian Stan. Yes. You've got Allison Janney as, um, Lavana Harding, Tanya Harding's mom. And then you've got, I can't remember the actor's name. I need to look it up because he's brilliant as Sean Eckhart. Who's, um, was Jeff Glulie's friend. I don't know who, if you know the story who was really probably the one who did the most to actually facilitate okay. Nancy Kerrigan getting her kneecap busted. Ugh. Um, so you've got the frame device. You keep returning to these four different um, interviews, but then their stories contradict one another. And yeah. so sometimes, it, sometimes it gets a little bit arch, but I I like it where you'll be seeing a story like Jeff Glulie will start saying something about the time that Tanya Harding did whatever, and so you'll see that. But then within the scene, Margot Robbie asks Tanya Harding, "Will stop and turn to the camera and say like it didn't ha- like I didn't do this. This didn't yeah. happen this way." Um, it's 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 a it's it's fun. Like I said, it's a very dark comedy, um, but it's also a true. Okay, I'm avoiding saying this because I can't remember which critic wrote it, but it's all over the advertising for the movie, and it absolutely works. Is it's it's the Goodfellas of the figure skating world. Yeah. It very much has that feel of like a lot of verve and energy but it's also a true story and it also gets incredibly tragic at times, but it's also very funny. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, it, it really feels like, uh, yeah, that's a little bit too good a description for me to pass up. Uh, Paul Walter Hauser is the actor who plays Sean Eckert. Hmm. Um, you also got, uh, Julian Nicholson plays, um, Tanya Harding's, uh, coach. And I've been a big fan of that actress for a long time. Uh, anyway, I don't really have anything else to say. Did you have something to ask me about it? Yeah, just uh, some of the reviews that I've that I've read um, talk about one of the elements of the film and about her larger story is that like that the skating world was seen as like no, this is for civilized people. Tanya Harding is just, I'm sorry to use the term, is just white trash. Yeah. Like, this is not for her. Basically kind of this country club type attitude. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of my concern when I first heard about the film, uh, and especially hearing that Craig Gillespie made it, not that I consider him a particularly smug filmmaker, and one of the things that I like about Lars and the Real Girl is how seriously he takes people that could be very easily dismissed as like flyover idiots. Um but uh, part of my concern hearing that this would be kind of comedic is that it would be mining sort of the southern white trash concept well, first, for, for uh, laughs. Pacific Northwestern. They're from okay. uh, Portland, Oregon. Right. But that's um, the thing is like you have this image in your mind. Yeah. Uh, um, no, I think it actually has a lot of um, uh, compassion, but it also um, uh, does not skirt the fact that um, uh, violence and domestic abuse, you know, flourishes in communities that are overlooked. Right. Um, And so uh, it's a really, you know, there's a really tight, uh, tight, a really thin tightrope. It's, it's walking a lot of the time and being like in the, the domestic violence that Tanya Harding suffered both, growing up from her mother and yeah. then from Jeff Galuli is it is, is not soft, soft sold, but it also yeah. happens in the middle of sometimes funny scenes. Hmm. Um, uh, it's really shocking. 
been really well done. I'm okay. I'm really really happy that Craig Gillespie made the Tanya Harding movie that I wanted when I heard about it a year ago. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, let's move on to TV. I think you were going to go first. Yeah. Uh, so, okay. Appropriately, um, this was not part of my plan, but having just talked about Zodiac, uh, I did finish watching Mindhunter on Netflix. Um, did I talk about this a couple weeks ago? I don't think so. I don't think I had either, actually. Um, yeah, it is a really great show in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, it also comes from David Fincher, who directs a number of the episodes. Um, great performances all around, and it's about the emergence in the 1970s in the FBI, the emergence of like profiling, not racial profiling, but like right. psychological profiling. And uh I, th- I don't remember if this, I think this is a fictionalized account uh, and it allows these, our, our main characters to talk to a lot of real life serial killers um, like uh, Edmund Kemper and uh, oh shoot, I forget some of the other names, but Edmund Kemper is the one to talk about. Um, not unlike John Carroll Lynch or not unlike Hannibal Lecter. By the time we see him, he's already been locked up and he was, he's a large man. He's got a mustache and glasses. He has a very odd way of talking. He's very charming, but undeniably like crazy. And the actor who plays him, I forget, I forget his name, but it is a marvelous performance. This whole show is worth watching for that performance and those scenes. They're just very well written. But beyond that, also just the, so Jonathan Groff, mm-hmm. Groff, right? Yeah. Uh, plays the main character. And then, uh, oh, shoot. It's like Colt McCallany or something like that, or Holt McCallany. I don't remember how you say it. But he's, you know, he's been a character actor bouncing around for a long time. Um, Holt McCallany, yes. Uh, and he's been in a bunch of uh, Fincher stuff. He's in Alien 3. He's in Fight Club. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've seen him before. He's okay. He always plays heavy type characters. Uh, and he's one of the leads in this and it's just, uh, those two do a wonderful job. And then, uh, Anna Torv plays, uh, a, a professor who specializes in this and is brought in, kind of brought onto the team. I and Torv. I, I, I don't think I remember her from anything. Well, she, well, fringe she was, yeah, lead which, on I, fringe. which I have not watched. That's so, when I used to watch TV. That was a good show. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like going through this, I don't know if I've actually seen her in anything beyond this. I but think most is, of it, I think, is Australian. Uh, yes, I guess that does look that does look to be the case. And it's a uh, yeah, it's just a, a show that I really I think it has. There's a certain there's definitely a certain patience to it uh, to such a degree that like they're clearly setting something up because they keep cutting to this other guy in Kansas mm-hmm. just one scene per episode, if that, uh, and he's just doing kind of mundane things, but you're like something, something's building here and they do not pay it off. Clearly that's going to be for season two. Um, and so it's a patience that might be frustrating to people, but I also, uh, and it also, it feels in a lot of ways like a less Gothic and purple, uh, Hannibal. Um, but it does feel as dark as that sometimes like the stuff that these characters are dealing with is some of the darkest stuff you've ever seen, which I think is one of the smart, I think it's smart that they incorporate actual cases into this because when you find out what Edmund Kemper did, you're just like, that's ridiculous. 
That is so over the top. Oh, nope. Let me look at the Wikipedia page. It's all there. He did all of that. It's horrifying, but it is also kind of funny at times. It's, it's, I mean, it's no Zodiac, but it's hard to be that, but it definitely does kind of pick up where Zodiac leaves off. And, uh, and I do highly recommend it. Um, all right. I, uh, finished this season of project runway. It was a very good season. Very disappointed in the final choice. Oh, I think, you know, I think you, when you briefly were watching project runway, you mm-hmm. talked about something that I, uh, I think you put into words and I thought about a lot since then, which is that project runway is a reality competition competition show that is actually about art and about mm-hmm. artists creating art. But I think, one thing I think the um, this this finale drove home is that fashion is also fashion. It's called fashion for a reason because it's about trends a lot of the time. Sure. And so I think when it came to the final collection, I think the, the final collections, I think the judges chose as a winner the person whose collection seemed most 2017 fashion-y hmm. as opposed to, which not that it was bad, but just seemed to fit the bill as opposed to picking the one that was the most, I think, fully realized, cohesive story and something that was incredibly personal to that designer. And like, uh, I mean, this person that I wanted to win, I don't want to give it away for people who aren't caught up yet. Right. The person that I wanted to win made something, made a collection that could not have been made by anyone but her. Hmm. Uh, I, I guess I'm already tipping my hand by saying her. Um, uh, and the person who won made interesting clothes, definitely. And some of them were very, inter- were very nice to look at. Um, but I feel like, I feel like they picked a good, but lesser collection because it just f- fit the trends more. Hmm. And I'm very, I'm very, after such a great season, I feel very disappointed in how it ended. I'm sorry to hear that. All right, go ahead. Uh, so being, (laughs) (laughs) uh, being sick, uh, I was watching a lot of Netflix. I wasn't in the mood to watch anything remarkably deep having just finished Mindhunter. Uh, so I watched seasons three and four of new girl, um, which is on Netflix. All of seasons three and four. Uh, yes, I watched them with Jen. I wasn't doing anything. I haven't been working. I've just been sitting around. Uh, and you know, that show you kind of, you kind of rip through it. It's very easy to watch. Um, have you seen new girls, Uh, new girl? I forget. Seen Maybe a couple episodes. Okay. Uh, I enjoy it. I enjoyed a lot more than I thought I was going to. I think it's thing with shows that are like, and they have reruns. There's like one episode of the show you've seen and yes. somehow every time you oh, turn yes. on the show, it's that episode. Oh yeah. So I think the Thanksgiving one with Justin Long, I'm not sure if that's in this. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I've seen it like two and a half times. Um, do you remember when Brian Hogan was making the documentary about me and, a, mm-hmm. and the Simpsons featured greatly into it because of course it's a show that I like, but also a show that bonded okay, you I'll, and I I'll, early on. Are we assuming people have stopped listening or do we need to explain who Brian Hogan and what this documentary oh, is? Oh, back in, back in college, uh, we had a classmate named Brian Hogan who was taking a documentary class and they, he needed to make a 20 minute documentary about somebody he found interesting. So he chose me cause I'm great, obviously. <laughs> um, and he had so much footage that he turned it into an hour and a half long documentary and the Simpsons featured prominently in it. Uh, and so every time, so like he would just, 
he wanted like footage of like me watching the Simpsons. And so it was the one where like Homer goes to uh, like rock and roll camp. And then he wanted to, and then like a, a while later he wanted to have me watching again. And it's the same episode. <laughs> it was like, what is going on here? Um, but, uh, but no, uh, new girl has a wonderful cast. I think it's very well written. I think, uh, Zoe Deschanel is like, you know, I remember in the early promos, it was like, she's adorkable. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I, it's, it's difficult, especially now, like whether it be geek, nerd, dork, whatever it is. And especially when you have somebody that is, I would say as attractive as Zoe Deschanel, like playing a dork, uh, it's just like, okay, yeah, yeah you heard a couple geek things or whatever, but no, no, no. She's genuinely very socially awkward, makes things worse a lot of the time because she's trying to make everyone like her. She it's, they really know what every character is. Um, I, I really feel in a, in a lot of ways it might not be as misanthropic as Seinfeld, but it feels a lot like Seinfeld as far as the way the ensemble works together. Albeit, you know, there, there are more arcs and there are more like actual, there are more hugs and more, there's more positivity and stuff. But, uh, but it has maybe one of the strongest ensembles that I've ever seen. And the way they're able to work together is, uh, quite delightful. So if you haven't seen new girl, check it out. Um, I, uh, speaking of shows about, uh, 2017, uh, urban hipsters, okay. uh, search party is back. Sure. The show is so great. Did you ever watch the first season? No. Um, it's what's uh, it on TNT? No. What is TBS, it on? Maybe? TBS. Okay. Um, it's hard to describe the show's sort of, uh, the lane that it's in because it's in multiple lanes. It's a, I think very, um, honest character driven show that is also very much a satire of modern hipster culture. Okay. And then the first scene is in season is also the hipster version of a Nancy Drew story. Okay. And this season, uh, cause there were a number of people I didn't agree with. There were a number of people who were like, after the first season ended, they were like, this was perfect. This should have been like a standalone miniseries. We don't mm. need another season. And people were trepidatious. Whereas I wanted to see, uh, what the next season was going to be. Um, uh, and it's, I'm cribbing this from the creators of the show who have said as much. If the first season was hipster, Nancy, Nancy drew the second season is hipster Hitchcock. Oh, um, because there's basically an, in, there's a thing that happened at the, a big thing that happened in the season one finale that is, you know, the, so the inciting incident of the series is that this girl that they, that the four main characters went to college with has disappeared. Mm -hmm. And the one character played by, um, um, something Shawcat, uh, Aaliyah Shawcat. Yes. Um, is maybe compensating for feeling kind of directionless in her life, Hmm. um, by dedicating herself to finding this girl that she barely even remembers from college. Hmm. That's the inciting incident. And the reason I think a lot of people um, would, were advocating for the show ending after the first season is because that mystery, that mystery, sorry, I bit my tongue. Um, the mystery of Chantal, the missing girl, is solved in the first season. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then another major thing happens, and so this no longer is a show about some searching for a missing person. This is a noirish show about 
good people who have maybe done a bad thing oh. and are trying to get away with it. All right. Um, uh, it's, it's really interesting to have seen it, you know, seen it change tone, but also stay true to the characters it's created. Um, which I think in, in great sort of, um, uh, satirical fashion or, or long form satire fashion, if you will, each of these, each of these characters started out as a kind of archetype of like a mockable archetype of hipster. Mm-hmm. And as the show has gone on, all the characters have gotten deeper and deeper. And, um, there's still some of the comedy about them being stupid or being, um, uh, self-obsessed or, or whatever you want to say about, you know, millennial hipsters or whatever. Uh, but it's now a show that is entirely rooted in, in character, um, while still being a genre show. Hmm. I'm super excited about the show being back. All right. So next for me, I had, so, uh, how much do you have left? Just one more. Just this. one more. Okay. Two more, right? Yeah, but I'll put them, I'll put them together. Oh, okay. Um, a couple of stand up specials on Netflix, one was Dimitri Martin live and the other was Brian Regan nunchucks and flamethrowers. Now, uh, let me ask you this. This is something that I've thought about in regards to music, but I think it can work with comedians as well. I feel like if you're a musical artist and you do three albums in a row and they're all basically the same type of music, it's good. But like someone could say like, well, they're just repeating themselves. Like, well, yes, but that's what they do. They're, an, they're a musician. This is the music they make. What do you want them to do? Um, but I find, but I myself have thought that about certain artists where it's just like, oh, one album's is the same as the next. Who mm-hmm. cares? Um, and so I do, I guess I do, even in the artists I love, I do require a little bit of change from one album to the next. Um, and I do think that I'm starting to think that way about comedians. In fact, I might have you and I have talked about like, for example, Patton Oswalt mm-hmm. that for a while he was like our favorite, but then, but then it's like, okay, I kind of know what he does now and he does it often and there's nothing wrong with that, but he's not throwing any curveballs my way. Um, which is one of the reasons that I like his most recent standup special. Cause he's talking very much about the loss sure, of his wife. Yeah. And so there's a lot going on there, you know, and like, uh, our friend, uh, Paul F. Tompkins, like he did a very specific type of comedy that I really enjoyed. And then he decided he wanted to get more into like story type comedy, uh, and be a lot more personal. And I think like, that's a, that's a great choice on his part. Um, <clears throat> no, I don't think, and so like Brian Regan, however, is a guy that has been hilarious my entire life and has always done the exact same type of comedy. Mm -hmm. And it's to the point now that it's not that I'm sick of it. It's that I know what I'm getting and that's all I'm getting. So I like his standup special. I laughed, but it's nothing I haven't heard before. And none of the bits in it are some of my favorite bits of his. It's kind of same with Dimitri Martin, but I think because Dimitri Martin is just kind of a one line type of guy. Like mm-hmm. his comedy exists like in like third, like Stephen Wright um, or like a, like a uh, Mitch Hedberg, like mm-hmm. his comedy exists in like 20 second chunks. And so they all add up to like this weird guy, but really it's just one joke after another. And, and so somehow I'm more okay with him giving me what I expect Hmm. Um, I think by and large, I like Brian Regan more, but I think I enjoyed the Dimitri Martin 
hmm. set more uh, because I felt it didn't feel necessarily new, but it didn't feel old either. Um, so I don't know. It's just very weird. And I, I find myself wondering, like, I don't, I'm not nearly as into stand up as I used to be. Um, but, uh, but I do wonder if I'm just becoming like this cranky old guy who, who yeah. is like demanding something new. It's like, I get it. Move on. We should start going to, uh, shows again and try to figure yeah, out sure. what's going on among the young people. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll be older than the ones on the stage, David. Yeah, that's true. That was true a lot of the time, 10 years ago. I guess that's true. <laughs> yes. Um, all right. Uh, I'll end with, um, I finally caught up on and finished the deuce and, uh, yeah, it's another great David Simon show. I feel mm-hmm. like there's a part of me that so almost like doesn't want to fall in line because the critics always fall all over David Simon, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know what to say. It's great. Yeah. It's a, uh, he has a, um, he and George Pelicanos have a great, um, they have a great sense for story and for building a story over a long term. This was eight episodes, I think, but also on, um, taking sort of, uh, uh, a, a socioeconomic groups or whatever mm-hmm. and making them about people. You yeah. know what I mean? The way that the wire was about, you know, drug dealers, but you saw them as individuals and you saw the hierarchies and you saw, uh, and same in, you know, uh, with the other groups that looked at in the other seasons. Right. Um, and Treme did the same thing with, uh, uh, different parts of, of new Orleans. Um, and this is a show that's about the beginning of porn as we know it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of the characters are prostitutes. A number of the characters are pimps. Um, there's mob guys, there's corrupt cops. There's a lot of like not very nice people on the yeah. show or people in, uh, you know, people you wouldn't necessarily feel safe spending an evening with. Yeah. Um, I don't mean spending an evening like a, you know, w- with the prostitute, you know, right. I mean? Right. Uh, I mean, sharing a drink with or whatever, uh, but they all become people over the course of the show. Uh, it's fantastic. And I'm very much looking forward to the, uh, the, the next season. All right. All right.